What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, we have Dave Weinberg from The Suicide File and No Reply. Daniel and I sit down with him. We do a nice, long interview. We talk everything late 90s, early 2000s, Southern California hardcore, as well as everything Suicide File. I think you're going to like it. It is super awesome, in my humble opinion. Also, a couple other things. On Friday, December 10th at the OPAC, uh, you got to go check out episode one, the legend Joe Rivas. He will be bringing the heat with his band out of trust. Uh, they are playing with field day, which is ex members of dag nasty as well as free will shout out Hartsfield and eight Oh five rockers in time. So, uh, check that out December 10th at the OPAC in Oxnard, California, um, 7 PM, all ages handle business. Also, about a year ago, my band Retaliate put out an LP titled Four on Indecision Records. So, uh, yeah, it's about the year anniversary of that. And I just wanted to say uh, it is probably the record that I'm the most proud of in my catalog. So uh, just wanted to remind everyone, go check that out. It is on all the stream platforms, or you can go to indecisionrecords.com, handle business there. But, you know... Doing this podcast is strange. It's weird to be kind of a music critic, I guess. That feels really dirty to say. But, you know, most of the people that come on here and talk about music, we've all, like, put ourselves out there. We wear our heart on our sleeves, and we got plenty of uh, material that everyone else can judge. So we're, we're not just critiquing it. We're living it. And, uh, yeah, if everyone could go revisit that LP, it's something that, that I love, I'm proud of, and uh, you should check it out because – this is all about the music. This is what I'm about. So, uh, yeah, Retaliate 4. It's on all the streaming platforms. It's there at indecisionrecords.com. Handle business. Please support the podcast by subscribing to it wherever you listen to it. Also, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, if you can rate it and review it, that would be awesome. I do not know why it matters, but it does. So it matters to me. Also, if you go to the website, 185milesouth.com, there is a playlist link. And if you click that, there's a playlist for every episode. So, uh, you know, right now, if you go click that, there's a bunch of uh, Dave Weinberg's music for this week. And uh, it's cool because, you know, we talk about music on here, but it is all about the music. So there's a playlist for every episode. Check it out and uh, listen to the songs that we talk about. Also, while you're on the website, smash that Patreon button. The Patreons are the people that keep this podcast alive. And I love them to a person. But let's get on with the pod. One hundred and eighty five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, we have Dave Weinberg of No Reply and Suicide File. What's up, Dave? Hey, Zach. Hey, Daniel. Hey. Oh, yeah. Dan's here, too. What's up, Dan? What's going on? Yeah. All right, Dave. Dan warned you on the text that this was going to be the hardest hitting interview ever. Okay. So I got to hit it for real. All right. <laughs> for 20 years... Our friend Ben Edge has been harboring some deep-set feelings that you were mean to him. 
oh, in, in the in the prime days of the PCH and so forth. Okay. And now, you know, you're you're in the world of uh, education and uh, where bullying is running rampant. Would you like to make an apology to Ben Edge? Uh, yeah, I can start by making an apology to Ben Edge. Uh, I think um, there was one time at the PCH where uh, Ernie from Life's Halt and I tried to heckle him just by agreeing really loudly with everything that he said. Um, so like, he'd be like, Hey, we're fields of fire. And we were like, yeah, you are, this is great. Uh, and we did that and he was really upset by it. And, uh, I would uh, sincerely like to apologize. I I think that, uh, it was, uh, I was trying to be funny and probably just as a younger person, not being as funny as I could have been. Uh, I disagree. That was the greatest night of heckling ever because (laughs) like, you know, the positive heckles, that shit is awesome. And, uh, yeah, I appreciate that, Ben. That squashes the beef, so what's up? Uh, no, but that night was great. That's like we used to go to UFC in kind of the semi-early days. Well, not early. It was, like, later, but, like, before it got super popular. Yeah. And, like, we would positive heckle. Like, come on, Mark. <laughs> believe in yourself. <laughs> you know? So positive heckle is cool, man, I think. I was a big right. fan. And and I was actually briefly in a band with Ben. Um and th- dude, I don't even know if you guys know this. That was one of the strangest lineups ever for a band. Do you, do you know about this band? No. Okay. Tell so, us. so it was uh, Opie from Collision playing drums, Jason. Um, and then it was Kevin Jaros playing guitar, Ben playing other guitar, Felix on bass, and me singing. Wow. Oh, and I Steve Hurts, too. I believe Steve was in it, too, uh, from Collision. And um, yeah. I don't know what else he was in, but other stuff. Um, my neighbor in the Inland Empire. This might be where the real like bitterness is coming from, <laughs> not from the night of positive heckling. Is <laughs> Ben mad this band didn't work out? Come on, Ben. Come on. All right, Dave, another hard-hitting one right out the gate. Yep. <laughs> it's been over 20 years, but did you ever make friends with Salad? In the time <laughs> no, no, that never, that never happened. <laughs> okay. Uh, right I, I will say that um, every time I go to any salad bar, that's what's in my head all the time. Uh, you should be passing out seven salad. Yeah, well, you got to pass out the seven inches. I know you got like 200 still. <laughs> you know, honestly, I, I, don't, I don't even uh, – I have nothing that I've ever recorded, not one thing. Why? That's wild. Uh, I don't know. I just – I've never been like a big collector or a big um, – like, it's just not really like, I don't know. I guess for me, what was most important always was like the, uh, the shows and like the people. Um, and then I moved so many times that it was really hard to, I, I think I sold my whole record collection when I moved from LA to Boston. Um, I sold it to Jean-Luc, I think, a headline. And yeah. um, then I just was like, ah, it's too late to start collecting again. Yeah, because I remember being annoyed at the time saying, you didn't give anyone a crack at like buying records before you went and sold it all. Well, it was stupid for a lot of different reasons because I sold it to him in bulk and in a panic. And if I had yeah. just sold those records one by one, uh, I'd, be a, I'd probably be a Bitcoin millionaire now or something. <laughs> yeah, but no one wants to order all those like the packages from Bags Unlimited. That's so painful. Well, this was also like um early ebay this was like 2000 so i don't even know like 
like I, I think that like I would have been dealing with people on the rev bad traders list and stuff. You know, it would have been a nightmare. <laughs> well, you may you have ended up. Right? You still got to pack them. You still got to pack them, and those people still cry. So uh, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. You may have ended up on it just out of, <laughs> you know. I think Zach's on it for one French guy accusing him of some shit. Oh, I think it was yeah. someone in Australia. Like he was oh. giving me shit, so I sent it like ground, even though he lived in Australia. It took like four months to get there. <laughs> uh, is that like, is there like an underwater tunnel between like uh, LA and Australia that they, it, like an LN production or something? <laughs> well, it's like ground slash rowboat. <laughs> rowboat. Okay, cool. That sounds really so. uh, uh, Dave, let's circle all the way back. Uh, when do you get into punk and hardcore, and where are you living at the time? Uh, well, I grew up in in Boston, and um, that was where I got into punk and hardcore. Um, so I went to middle school and high school with uh, um, there's a band from Boston called The Trouble that was like um, a big band in Boston. I don't think they were much very big outside of Boston but those were all my friends from like middle school and high school and I was in a band with um, Mac the bass player and Mike the drummer Um, and they kind of like knew more about punk stuff than me and Dave the guitar player of that band actually worked at Tang Records of all things I I don't know what Curtis was doing employing like a seventh grader but he was Um, and uh, definitely the kind of person that would thrive on child labor (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, so the tank store was in Harvard square and I used to go just hang out with Dave and then like Curtis would come in and like bloviate about like what records we needed to get and stuff. Um, and then the Lemonheads went to my high school. Um, so like they were like probably the most important band to me early on because they used to practice in the basement of my high school. Um, and, um, when I formed a band with Dave and Mac and Mike, uh, I asked the janitor at my high school if like we could practice. And then Evan Tando came back and gave like an assembly uh, to the school where he played acoustic in the library. And like all those things were super formative for me. Um, so th- this was all this all would have been early 90s, right? Like 91, 92. Um, and a lot of the stuff I got into was stuff that I found out through um, Tang. And so it was a really weird, like I probably like learned about bullet LaVolta before I learned about like, I don't know, uh, youth of today. Right. Like it was a very weird way to get into, um, punk and hardcore. Um, and, uh, I remember Mac, um, who was somebody that, uh, he was like, just knew everything about music. And this was all pre internet when you had to, um, I guess like be sending letters to people in MRR and stuff. And he, he would just make me tapes of stuff. Um, that's how I found out about like negative approach and minor threat and stuff like that. Um, there weren't really good shows in Boston in the early nineties. Um, there was like a couple local bands like, um, eye for an eye and Sam black church and stuff like that. But hardcore didn't really feel like something you could like, get into it was more like something that i did with my friends and then like listened to by myself um and um we started playing that band started playing shows like in like the suburbs of boston basically um and and actually our first i think our second show was with the unseen and um i can't even remember honestly but um 
it was it was like right when punk was like blowing up in Boston. So there were like 600 kids there uh, at like a veterans hall in Whitman, Massachusetts. Um, and uh, not long after that, I, I moved out to California uh, for school. Um, what, was, what was the name of that band that you did with the Trouble Dudes? Um, it, was, <laughs> it was called DPW, which stood for Disgruntled Postal Workers. Uh, and we actually recorded a demo with Brian McTurnan of all people, but it was when Brian McTurnan was just starting out. Like um, he was living with Trey uh, McCarthy and I can't remember who else. And we went there as like high school kids. He was so mad that we, we didn't have a car. We like took the subway with like our amplifiers and drums and stuff. Uh, and he was like, and we set up and recorded there I don't know if anybody has that demo. A couple of those songs ended up becoming trouble songs, actually. But the demo exists somewhere. I always picture Brian from like, you know, the first battery seven inch, like it's a guy that has wolf photos all over his house. Is that true? Um, no, uh, he was like a very, um, he was very young too at the time. And uh, the th- main thing I remember, and I'm not sure why this was the decor, but he had like a million pictures of Leslie Nielsen around his house. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and they all had like X's on his head, um, like uh, Charles Manson style, right? Um, <laughs> that was what the decor was. It's, it's a very strange specific memory, but that is definitely a true statement. And uh, probably I should ask Trey about that at some point, whether that was like something that my brain invented or that actually happened. So Dude, Salad Day Studios is built on the, uh, the cult of Leslie Nielsen. Yeah. Well, so the other thing I remember is that like when we finished clutch or no cast iron hike was coming in to record the next day. And that was like the first big um, band that he was going to record. Interesting. Oh, wow. So, so Dave, you move out here for school. How do you meet people that are into punk and hardcore? Were there other people going to, you went to Claremont or Pomona somewhere out there. Yeah. Yeah. People there in, or... in Claremont. Um, well, uh, initially, um, uh, the first people that I made friends with were like some of the like punk people that I went to school with. So Nick Turner, um, who ended up playing guitar in deficit, he, and then he ended up in cold sweat later. Uh, and now I think he actually works for sub pop. Um, but, um, he was like my first friend that I met at Pitzer. Like we just like met in the dining hall. Cause he was wearing like a minor threat shirt or something. Um, and he, I mean, he really knew everything about music and was like interested in a lot of the like crustier and dirtier stuff. So he was like the guy that introduced me to like infest and discharge and all of that stuff. I, I hadn't really, I wasn't super familiar with a lot of that stuff. Um, and then I met Rob, who was the bass player in Deficit around the same time. He was just like a Orange County hardcore kid that loved like Ignite and um, uh, I don't know, like Triceratops, bands like that. Right. Um, and, you know, I was just like, I want to do a band. And we did that. And we we got our friend Alex, who didn't like hardcore. He just I think he mainly liked like Red Hot Chili Peppers and stuff. Um, but he was like very enthusiastic and down to play drums. Um, and, um, we, um, like Pitzer was a great place for shows. So I, I don't know if you guys know this, but you know, that like drift again, outspoken rage against the machine show that happened there. Are you familiar with that at all? Um, 
not not in a very specific thing. I think I've in um, there's photos of that show by uh, Martine from Los Angeles. I think, but I don't know too much about the show being like infamous or anything. Well, it's, it wasn't that infamous of a show. It was just like there was like before I got there, there was already like people doing shows there and people really um, uh, like that. That show was like a, a really big show for Southern California. I know. And then the, the guys from Man is the Bastard also went to my school. So, um, so some of the early shows that we booked were like those things. And then we there was a really good record store. It actually, it's still there um, called Rhino Records in Claremont. Um, and that was like, I mean, it was great, especially given that Claremont like was not exactly like a, a hub of culture. Right. Um, and at, um, at Rhino records, like we met a bunch of the like local, like hardcore and punk kids, um, including that band clam chowder, um, who ended up doing a split with, and they were just like 16 year old kids that really liked like SOA and, um, like the subhumans, right? Like that was their, that was their vibe, but they were great. Uh, and really like nice kids. And we started playing shows out there. And then, um, Zach, I want to say you were one of the first people that I, I like my memory on a lot of this is, is like a little shaky. I met you and Todd and Corey all around the same time. Uh, I don't know if you have any memory of that, but like, I think I want to say I met, uh, you at one of those shows at Claremont. Does that sound right? Yeah. Deficit played a show with standard ground in the demo era. Right. So that would have been why you met Todd and Corey. And I wasn't in the band yet, but I was at the show. Okay. Okay. And then around this time, like in SoCal, like there was a little bit of the, the AOL, like hardcore chat room was kind of bringing, people from different towns together to like say what's up to each other when they're finally in the same room, you know, I miss that. Like I, I got online late. I think I didn't get online until like 99, 2000. And this was all maybe three or four years before that. Um, yeah, but I know that's how Zach met a lot of San Diego people, right? Got it. Okay. Yeah. I met Don that way yeah. for sure. But yeah, that show was cool. It was in a room on the floor. Yes. And- yeah. Yeah, and then later there would be shows. I don't know if it was at the same college or a nearby college that were like outside and during the day. Well, um, Claremont also had shows at the Claremont Youth Activity Center, um, and so like Ignite played there. And then um, I'm sure you guys remember this show. This was later, but like there was a show with like every band from California, like Carry On, Death by Stereo. Um, it was No Replies' first show, I think, or second show, um, and so like. Um, Sorry, let me backtrack a little bit. I mean, something that was kind of frustrating when I moved to California was that there were, I didn't feel like there were many shows that I was too into seeing. Um, like I was really into going to like a lot of the more street punky shows. That's that was happening, but a lot of the hardcore was like a lot of OC hardcore that I couldn't fully relate to at, at the time. Um, I mean, I discovered Unbroken at that time and Ignite, and those two bands were great. And then redemption 87 at the same time. And I was like really excited to go see those bands. And that's how I think I met, like, I'm pretty, I remember very well that I met Todd now, um, it's coming to me now at a ignite redemption 87 show at the whiskey. Um, Cause I was wearing a floor punch shirt and he was really excited about that. And I ended up giving him the shirt. Um, but um, 
like I, the the like fast hardcore scene at the time was really small, was really, really small. So you would see the same people like over and over and over again. And I remember seeing Ben, for example, and I remember seeing like, I met Igby at one of those shows. Um, and, um, but there weren't really like kid, like, or like younger bands playing fast or hardcore at the time. Like, or if there were, like, I was not aware of them, right? Like, no, you realize, Ignite would play like all kinds of shows, but it was already like, <coughs> I don't know. They were in like their proto pro core like yes. era, you know, like they were, they were able to get on the club. Like they were on a bunch of shows, right? Like I talk about like seeing them with Mill and Colin or seeing them with the Aquabats, but still like we treated them like the grateful dead and like went and saw them anywhere because there was so much little like fast hardcore in that straightforward lane. Like I'm sure there was plenty of, like you talk about like man is a bastard going to your school. Like there's always that, but for whatever reason that never connected as much with me. Yeah, and Ignite did. So we like traveled to see them. But I understand like the void you're talking about right now, which is like what you're going to do in your next band, right? Like create a band that's going to fill some of that void. I think so. And and like, I, I mean, the other thing is like, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys have had this experience, but like, I also think when you're that, like, I just wanted to go see any band play. So I would go see like the Promise Ring play or I'd go see like, um, <clears throat> whatever, like the Locust or whoever was playing. Right. And I didn't like it very much, but I would go, right? Like, I'd be at all those shows. Um, I actually did kind of like some Promise Ring songs. But, I, um, I, liked, I liked going to a, a vast variety of things, but the same as you, the same as Zach, the fast, like, real deal hardcore is what I was aching for more than anything. You know? Yeah, I mean, Oxnard is so close to, like, the Pickle Patch and Galita, which is all like the, the abolition stuff, you know, coming through. And, and I went to all of that, but again, it's like, I just want a mainline floor punch or mainline like ignite, you know? Yes. That was really what I was feeling at the time. And like, I was really into, um, by that point, um, like I had started out really just with a pretty straight, like hardcore punk background of like all the classics, right. You know, like everything you would expect. But by that time, um, I, I guess I should mention that that um, Rhino Records also had a great zine selection, and so I started picking up um, hardware zine at the time yeah. and change zine. And again, this was all pre-internet, right? Well, I mean, I guess it was there. Uh, you guys were on AOL, but I I was missing out on this, I guess. Um, but um, and so like hardware really turned me on to like Chromex and and that whole. I mean, what would become like that whole East Coast like straight edge and, and, um, fast, hardcore revival, but that what didn't really exist yet in California. Uh, well, I think hardware and hardware and change were massively important to me too, while I was away in the Navy, because they were connecting the dots on classic records that I'd never not checked out yet because they were out of press, you know, yes, yes. things like that making me like reach out for that Chromag CD that had age of quarrel and followed up by best wishes on the same CD things yes, like those that. An, like, those another planet ones. Yes, exactly. Um, and then change, you know, r was amazing for those that don't know change was like, talking about straight up hardcore as well as the ancillary scenes of the like American football or the promise ring, things like that. But it was also with a heavy basketball loving slant. So if you're a little bit of a jock, it was awesome on that level as well. 
Um, he had interviews with Anthony Mason and things like that. It was really great. I remember that. Yeah. Um, well, so, so like hardware and change introduced me to a lot of like classic, but at the time more obscure hardcore, like, um, like I had never heard of like, um, you know, like straight ahead or, um, uh, I mean, I guess like killing time and raw deal and, and stuff like that. This was before all that stuff got reissued. Um, and so like trying to track all that stuff down was like, became like a new obsession for me. Um, and that was like the hardcore that I loved. I, I, um, I remember I got like a rest in pieces record. Uh, we would go to vinyl solution, Nick and I in Huntington beach, a lot too. Uh, and that was like a, that was a great record store. Like they had absolutely everything. Um, Dude. and, uh, and the midnight madness sales. I don't remember that, but I do, <laughs> but I do remember like, um, like I would, like the, the way that it would work would be like, um, I mean, Nick from deficit, um, was just like always down to go record shopping or go to any show. And so he and I would like, I mean, and that was insane. Like it would take us like an hour to get to Huntington beach from Claremont. Right. But we would be like, ah, we'll go. And then we'll spend 15 minutes there and then we'll come back. Um, but, um, like I was buying all kinds of like, I was also buying a lot of like weird lost and found bootleg stuff for sure. Um, cause like that was the only way that some of that stuff was available. Um, for sure. That's, that's the only place you could get some of those deep cut East coast, bands that would still be able to tour Europe but were unheard of in California pretty much to the generation we were in until you like spoke to someone who was older and then they were like no the abused you need to get into that you know what I mean like it would yes for sure yeah yeah I, I, I don't want to sidetrack this conversation too much but I do want to talk Vinyl Solution for a minute because I don't think that we've talked about it on the pod yet that place mm-hmm. was straight up a mecca it was you know in the late 90s like Going there, you always scored. That place is amazing. And I went there probably two years ago, and I straight up wanted to cry. Like, it was so sad. It was like one of those record stores you walk into, and, and like, you're in and out in, like, five minutes. And, like, you know nothing's even close to what you're looking for. Yeah. And yeah. it was just like, god damn. And, and I, I hate to say that publicly because I want Vinyl Solution to succeed. And, and hopefully, like, it was just, you know, record stores, stock comes and goes. So I'm not trying to knock it, but, like. In back in the day, like Dave talks about, like driving an hour to go there, like that's real. Like we lived in Oxnard, so it was like, you know, somewhere between an hour and a half and two hours. And like when we would go to shows, like we would go way out of the way just to go there. Like we gotta we gotta fit in a run to Vinyl Solution on the way to the showcase. It's like it's barely even on the way. You know what I mean? Or if we went to San Diego, like we gotta leave an hour early so we can go to Vinyl Solution and go to Lose Records. And these these things are are weird because they're gone now right like they both exist but like in the like just with how music is now like it's not as important unfortunately i i agree and i i think that's something that like is really striking to me about like remembering this stuff is like how important physical location was to everything right like um like the way that I met all of my friends in punk and hardcore was like at record stores and at shows and 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 um you know, you would just like, like, I don't know how I had this amount of free time, but I would just like hang out at record stores and just sit outside and like, whatever, chill out. Like, and that was a big part of like being, uh, well, for me, a big part of like being a punk or hardcore kid was like, 
hanging at those places. And, and so if you found a place like Vinyl Solution or even like Doctor Strange or Rhino, like it was great. Like it was it was a mecca. Um, and I don't know that record stores still play that same role, but um, um, was- probably not. But maybe the thing about Vinyl Solution, what was so cool, like I touched on it earlier about the Midnight Madness sales, but I would go up from San Diego uh, with friends for a Vinyl Solution Midnight Madness sale because it'd start like around 10 p.m. And it was just uh, Jeff Tornado Head and then the other dude that looked like he was in Rocket from the Crypt. I can't remember his name. Yeah. What they do is they just start drinking and they'd be playing like the best punk records at the loudest volume ever. Everyone's in there shopping. And it was like a mini show without anybody playing live. And then what you do is you go grabs a few things off the wall that you'd been, you know, eyeing for months. You'd go search all the racks, get everything, get a nice pile together. You know, it could total to like $250. Then they'd look through it and, you know, depending on how drunk they were at that point, they'd be like, hmm, give us like $160. I'm like, <laughs> yes. You know, it was the best thing ever. And, I mean, there's plenty of other record stores that matter, like, massively in in this southern california hardcore experience but vinyl solution definitely needs uh its moment in the sun on the pod yeah but dan don't blame it on the drinking dude like oh they were drinking so they were dumb come on man no no i'm not saying they would it's not that they were dumb it's that they were getting generous (laughs) that's right drunker they got the more generous they got that's right having some beers with your friends it brings people together what's up people (laughs) <laughs> All right, Dave, let's talk about you, like, ending deficit and starting No Reply. Like, is there a mission statement with No Reply? Like, what is your goal with this band? Uh, well, so um, I think that one of the – so uh, let me back up a little bit. Uh, like, um, the first thing is, like, De- deficit actually ended up playing, like, a, a lot of shows. And um, we played with, like, Business and Warzone when they came out at the showcase. And – and um like I, I remember being really psyched. We played. Um, we went to Cobalt Cafe to play with Stand Your Ground, and we um, uh, like started playing more and more shows. And we actually played at PCH Club very, like, very early on at PCH. And our last show was at PCH Club. Um, and we were heavily connected to like the Pomona Food Not Bombs chapter, and so it was like a really like. It was a very diverse group of people that were coming to our shows by the end. It was like a lot of like, just like people that like, were like, oh, well, you know, like I really like uh, eating eggplants like on Sundays at noon while serving homeless people. Like, and I like deficit, right? Like that was our, that was our crowd. Um, And um, so, but I, I think what happened was that like, I started to meet more people that were like much more in the like wheelhouse of the kind of hardcore I really liked. Um, Deficit was a lot of fun, but it was like a marriage of like, you know, four people that had really wild musical taste. Right. Like, um, and like Alex and Rob, I don't think were like hardcore kids in the traditional sense. Um, But I had met Westbrook through Igby um, and Westbrook and I like just immediately hit it off. Uh, and w- we ended up going to a bunch of shows together. Um, I, 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 I don't want to go on too much of a 
were either of you at that anti-hero show at the whiskey that turned into like a giant riot? Fuck no. no. You had to pay for parking. <laughs> well, I went to that show. Um, at someday you guys should do like a show on uh, hardcore and punk riots. Cause I have a bunch of good stories about those. But um, this was like, I don't even know what happened, but like the whiskey was shut down for a month because um, like all of the people going to see the antiheroes just destroyed the place. And people were like shooting out the TVs in there and stuff. Uh, and that was, that was like the first show I went to with Westbrook. Um, and he was like, man, I don't know. This, this seems kind of crazy. Like, <laughs> uh, but. Well, I Definitely had a uh, fence-walking fan base that was pretty scary. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, oh, but sorry. Also, Deficit played with Life's Halt a bunch of times. Uh, and so I, when I saw that band for the first time, uh, I was like, oh, my God. This is like – there's actually a band here that like I can get into and like – that I can see it like, you know, once a week, that is one of the best hardcore bands I've ever seen in my life. Right. And like that had never really happened to me before. Yeah, it's like discovering bad brains in your backyard, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, like, I, I guess the closest equivalent was like Slapshot was still kind of playing shows in Boston when I was a kid, but like they were well past their prime, right? They were like blonde hair blast furnace era. Um, and so to like see a band, where like I connected with all of the music and all the words and the people were like incredible. And just to know that like, you know, like if I asked them to play a show, they'd be like, yeah, we'll, we'll play a show. Like, this is great. Um, that was a, that was a huge turning point for me, like meeting them and seeing them. Um, because up to then, like we had played and like I had seen a bunch of shows, but it all seemed like it was more based on like, oh, these are good people, not this is like great music or this is a great live band. Does, does that make sense? Yes, it's the ultimate insult in hardcore. Yeah, that band, really nice guys. <laughs> well, so um, Felix from Life's Halt and Westbrook and I, we, we all got along super well. And we talked about like wanting to do like a, a more like like a faster hardcore band. Um because again, at the time, there was starting to be some like more youth crewy stuff in Southern California. Um, like Carry On had started by that point, um, and um, there was a band called Insist that w- was starting to play. Um, like you know, there were there were starting to be bands that were like playing faster hardcore. But um, other than Life Salt, there wasn't really a band that was playing like. Um, more like the hardcore that I grew up with, right? Like, like, um, kind of fast, sloppy and somewhat like, like had really like important and exciting things to say. Um, and so we started practicing, I want to say that was like winter 98, 99. And then our, our first show was with, with, was at the Claremont Youth Activity Center with um, Death by Stereo, Carry On, Collision. Um, I can't even remember who else, but like, you know, all those bands were just starting off. I think it was Death by Stereo's second show, maybe. Um, and um, and then our, our second show after that was New Year's 99. And that was at the PCH with Nerve Agents and, and um, Good Riddance playing under a different name, I think. Um, and in my eyes, um, Zach, you must've been at that show. 
I don't think I went to any of those Good Riddance shows when it was like, yeah, it was right before a tour. Like they were doing some stuff. I remember, but okay. uh, no, I didn't go. My bad. But damn, you guys really struggled to uh, find some early good shows, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, I think like the thing that was crazy was like, as I said, like Deficit started playing enough shows and there was like starting to be enough people like gelling that were doing this stuff. And I, you know, I would go to every show. Like it didn't matter. I mean, uh, Zach, I know this is something that you can relate to because I used to see you at every show. <laughs> but like, you know, it didn't matter if like whatever, like, I don't know, like Jay June was playing at the Huntington Beach Library. Like I was like, ah, I guess I'll go. I'm not doing anything else. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it, it was very organic. Like I, I'm giving you a hard time, but like it made sense that you land on all these shows because you went to all the shows. That's what I talk about when people ask about like the early days of in control, like how did you find shows? And it's like, well, we were forced to play out of town because there was no club at home at the time. And we'd been going to shows for years now, like to every show. And it's like, why wouldn't I book this band when they're going to come and bring 20 friends? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and you pay dues, you know, like that was an important thing to, if you support, you deserve support. You know, it was, it was taken, that was taken into account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the the paying dues is like not only like your band paying dues, but like you needed to be a guy that went to shows. Yeah, so. yeah. Dave, let's do a, a quick sidebar on Life Salt real quick. Yeah. Because you bring them up and, and they really were important. They really were special, especially like, not especially, because like I guess this is the less important time because they end up being a, a great timeless hardcore band, I think. But those early days like on the demo, they were just wild and it was it was crazy watching them because they're going to implode like during the set. And that was like part of the magic. And it's kind of like one of those intangible things that you can't like explain to people. Like you're watching this great band and you know, at some point it's like all going to fall apart, but that's what makes it so great. Is that how you felt as well? Yes. Um, the first time I saw them, well, so I had met Felix prior to that. I think I met Felix at some strife show or something like that. Um, Oh, we didn't talk about Strife, but like Strife for me was an example of a band that like I just couldn't get down with, but like I would go see them every time because they were always playing, right? Like, um, but it was, um, it was a spectacle also. Yeah. Well, they were like, I mean, I, I would say at the time they were like the biggest hardcore band in Southern California for sure, right? For um, sure. And, um, but yeah, so, so Felix. Felix invited me to a show. I, I want to say like, I, I can't believe how bad my memory is on all this stuff now. I mean, I guess it's over 20 years ago, but, um, it was at cobalt, I think. And that was the first time I ever saw them. Um, and like it was with their old drummer. Um, and he, 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 um, like as soon as they started playing, like Ernie did a full black flip into the drum set and just like, they had to stop playing and reset up the drum set. Yep. Yep. And then like the drummer was so mad at Ernie that he was just like swearing at him and screaming at him and throwing drumsticks at him. Cause he had like messed up his drum kit. But like that also somehow added to the show being incredible. And um, I don't know if you guys probably remember this, Ernie would just like, singing the words or singing in time, that wasn't particularly important to Ernie. No, no. Uh, he was mostly just interested in like, like throwing his body around like a WWE wrestler, like at everybody. And um, 
when they played, like I had just, I had seen like performative lose your shit bands, right. You know, yes. like, um, HB library, especially totally. But this was like, there was no performative anything here. Like mm-hmm. I want to say that like I was one of six people watching them and they were playing as though like somebody had held a gun to their head and said like, if you don't use every ounce of energy in this show, we will kill your whole family. Right. Like they were, yeah. they were incredible. Um, what was incredible too about Life's Halt at this time is we've got all the stuff in the youth crew revival coming across from the East coast that we're all loving, you know, the floor punch, 10 yard fight, et cetera, et cetera. Well, here's a band that's playing super fast, pissed hardcore with, with some breakdowns, but they're singing about stuff that is extremely, you know, political and, and personal and important rather than, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love all the other stuff as well, but you know, they're singing about a lot more like it. And, and that, was really cool to see because it was that bridge between the punk and hardcore um, thing while being the most raging hardcore band around, you know? Yeah. I mean, like they were taking really intelligent takes on like subjects of the day, right? Like this is straight edge revival time, but like life's halt is talking about living in the hood and having like a beer, a beer billboard be on like every fucking, like every billboard is like some toxic shit. Right. Yes. Like it's just such like a cool take on things and so real and just so authentic. And Dave, it's funny you talking about that show at the cobalt because my experience was exactly the same. Although it was at that public storage spot, which like, I think I was at that show too, but I had seen them before that, I think. Right, right, right. But like, it was like the same, like they just melted down and eventually like the drummer got so pissed. He like threw, threw his drums all over the place. And there was probably like 15 people there, you know? And yeah, the first while drummer's Dave, a wild man. While Dave was telling that story, I'm like, I've heard this exact same story from Zach. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a different show. So rad. <laughs> no, but it is it's really interesting, like the evolution of that band and like they're kind of like unsung heroes at this point. Like they've kind of gotten wiped away to history, I think. And it's just important to like give them their due. Because like they turn into a great band when they lose that drummer who was like a part of the specialness and the wildness of those early days. Yeah, the next drummer they get like turns them into a great band. Yeah, and it, well, so another good like side story I have on this is like when they were recording the seven inch, um, we all went to go. They recorded it with um, Rusty from Treadwell, um, and and we all went to go do backup vocals. And um, Mike Amesqua um, was there, and for some, I mean, this is a very like Treadwell vibe, but like Rusty had a bunch of switchblades lying around. Um, and so for some reason, Michael Mesquil like picked up the switchblade and basically like chopped his thumb off. Um, and like, I, I mean, it was a weird crew of people there. It was like all of life's halt. And then like, um, (laughs) like I think Alex PCH was there and, and I was the only person that had a car. So I had to drive him to the hospital. (laughs) So I didn't get to sing backups on the on the record because well, I was oh, driving, <laughs> driving Mike to the. Hitchhike. What's that? He definitely couldn't hitchhike to the hospital. No, no. So I mean, he was fine. Like they they were able to um, like uh, put some stitches in there and all that. But I remember being so bad. I was just sitting in the Long Beach hospital waiting room while like um, Life Salt was recording, and I didn't get to do backups. 
That's um, fucked up. Did they credit yeah. you on the record? I don't, I honestly have no idea. I mean, probably I probably not. should be credited with like making sure that Mike Mesco still has a thumb, but like, <laughs> I don't know how I would be credited otherwise. I'm going to check after this and, and I'll, I'll give everyone an update on the intro. So this, okay, won't, cool. this won't make sense. Yeah. But let's um, go on with uh starting no reply. Well, so, so we started like, what was great about no reply was it was all people that were really like into doing it. Right. Like, I mean, I'm sure both of you have had this experience that like when you're early bands, it's like, well, I got to work. I can't play a show. Like, all right, well, you know, like I have to give my mom a ride to this place. Right. Like, and, and there was like, so you get offered good shows and, and you couldn't take them. And with no reply, we were just like, we were the ones booking the shows. We were the ones going to all the shows. And so we were prioritizing that above like absolutely all else. And we would practice a lot. And then our original drummer was this guy. Um, God, I, I want to say his name was Neil. It was just like some skater guy that um, Westbrook knew. And um, I think he went to jail or something. Like there was some reason why he couldn't continue to play drums for us. And I, I really can't for the life of me remember what it was. Uh, I hope I'm not like uh, blaspheming him or anything. But like there, he, he ran into some sort of like legal or financial trouble and could no longer play drums for us. Um, and then we got this like crazy grindcore kid. Um, and I don't know how Westbrook found him, but that's who played drums on the seven inch, which is why that seven inch sounds so fast. Um, and, uh, go ahead. Did the the drummer who went to potentially went off to the legal field, um, was he on the demo? Yeah, he played on the demo. Okay. Um, So, so. How what's the di- what's the distance between the demo and then getting ready to record the seven inch? Well, we recorded the demo like out in deep in the Inland Empire, like I think it was somewhere in San Bernardino, maybe actually, um, and that was like fall of fall of ninety eight, I want to say, uh, and, and then, then we started playing distributing around ninety nine, like get what's paid that? And all of that? So then you record it and then you basically kind of get it together for like passing it around, like at the very end of 98 and distributing yes. it around 99. Yeah. And we started playing shows like December, January, 99. I'm sorry, December, 98, January, 99. And then we went in to record this Igby and Westbrook were very close friends and Igby offered to put this seven inch out on mankind. And so we went and recorded that seven inch, Um, that would have been spring of 99, I want to say. Um, but at that point we started playing like just every show that we could. Um, and I remember we played like in the Valley at like, it was a place called the gas chamber. Um, Zach, is this ringing any bells for you? Dude, that's like a weird thing where it's in the back of my brain, but my, my cerebral cortex won't grab it. It's like, okay. I've heard of it. (laughs) Don't remember it. Well, it was with um, it was with Carry On and Insist, um, I had and, and that was the show that I remember meeting like a much broader world of LA folks at. Right, like that was the show. That was the we had played with like Carry On and bands like that a bunch, but like it was just us that had been showing up. Right, like, and not that there's anything wrong with that, but like you saw the same like twenty five people at every show. And that show, I think, was the show I met like Todd Tyler and Warren and 
all of those other folks like um, was around that time. Uh, and I remember being like, oh, wow, like L.A. actually is starting to have like a faster hardcore scene. Yeah, um, like and then the other thing was that like the Dirty Dirt guys and stuff. Like yes, that. yes, exactly. Um, the Dirty Dirt guys were actually from out by where I went to school. Um, I don't even remember how I met them. But Felix and I put out that record. Yeah. Like that seven inch. Um, well, you, you probably met Rich in the pit at a Madball show. <laughs> that seems like the most likely place. <laughs> um, no, they were from they were from Glendora, which the most important thing about Glendora was that there was a vegetarian hot dog place there. So we, we used to go there and meet them for vegetarian hot dogs. Um, this was like when you could not get any vegetarian food anywhere. Yeah, I've been to that spot with Mandel. Okay, yeah. Um, Dude, we have to do another sidebar because that's so funny. Like thinking back on, like going out of your way for like vegan food back then. Like I remember going to a show with uh, Sasha Expaw, like in San Diego. I picked her up in Huntington. We go down to San Diego, and she's like, "Oh, we got to go to this place that has vegan chocolate chip cookies." Like it's off the freeway. It was somewhere like north of San Diego, like Carlsbad. And I was like, "All right, if it's right off the freeway, that's fine." And it was like fucking like twenty minutes off the freeway. You know, to go and get like three cookies. I was like, what the fuck? And it's like, they're just made with carob. Like, can't we just get that somewhere else? What the what? Or just eat dirt. Yeah. Like, can we just eat celery? What the fuck? Uh, there's, a, there's a really good uh, story about a Boston hardcore personality who was like obsessed with, I, I'm not going to name the person, but they were obsessed with um, this like vegan spot in um, Connecticut called the Vegan Enclave. And so they would like always be like, let's drive two hours to go to the Enclave. And when they got there, they'd be like, I'll have one plain bagel, please. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, so, all right. Uh, let me try to like moderately uh, get my uh, get my timeline back on track. Because the, the other thing that I feel like was important was that like there started being these these like hubs for the scene at that point that didn't exist prior to that. So headline started up around that time. Um, I, it may have been there before then, but I, they weren't doing shows or anything, right? Like they weren't, it wasn't like a, a spot. And then PCH started right around that time. And Dan, I met you at PCH at like a Palpatine show. I want to say. Yeah. With, um, uh, nerve agents. Okay. That sounds right. Yeah. Okay. Well, we, we would play with nerve agents every time they played PCH, which was every week, basically. And we, so, we played we played that show where we wore all the boiler suits with the hoods and everything. Um, and, like, we had a ton of friends that were all <laughs> called the sleeveless nation, and they cut the sleeves off of their shirts. And they would, I don't know, it was ridiculous. Anyway, they caused a scene, and uh, Eric was like, like, I guess this goes out to the sleeveless people. <laughs> I do were, remember that. I vaguely remember that. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's the night I met you. Well, I, I could have also met you at like coming up with built to last for something as well. That's right. Well, so no reply played every time we played in San Diego was with built to last. I remember we played, um, uh, what was the Club. name of that? It was empire club. Is that right? Yeah. 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 We and played there. And, what's that? Then it became Club Xanth as the uh, ownership uh, switched to, well, as the people who owned it were goths and they wanted to make it sound more goth. There you go. Sounds like a great rebranding. Dave, you're starting to tap into like a really important point of this time though, is like 
these satellite areas start popping up. So you have headline pops up, you have the PCH starts going, you have San Diego, like this connection starts being made between like us all the way up in Oxnard, the LA guys, the San Diego guys, San Diego, you have the PCH, you have the empire club going and up with us, we would have like the living room or the pickle pickle patch patch too. Yeah. Yeah. We're in the pickle patch, you know, and also laser star for like about two years. And so like this starts happening and, Continue speaking on that. Um, well, Pickle Patch I th- was actually a, a shockingly important place too, because that's, I met a bunch of people there too. Um, like um, that 10 yard fight show at Pickle Patch was a show in which I feel it was one of the first shows that I went to where I was like, wow, I know pretty much every single person here. Right. Um, yeah. I, I remember that. And then I remember um, uh, there were, there were like, there was a no reply ensign show at like a skate park in, in Ventura maybe. Um, that was like, um, I'm sure you remember this in some way. Um, but like the key things about that show were, um, I think it was one of the last, I carry on played it. I want to say it was one of the last carry on shows that Jordan played. Um, and then when ensign played, I guess some like Nazi guys showed up. Um, and they like, there was like the biggest brawl that I ever remember. And then it was the most Looney Tunes moment of all time, because like I was watching this pile of people and this, like people just attacking this Nazi. And then I'm looking and there's still a huge like pile and there's dust flying everywhere. And the Nazis just walking away. (laughs) Everybody's just piled on each other, hitting, hitting each other. (laughs) Yeah, that was, that was was skate street. And so yes, people, okay, Skate Street. Yeah. People listen to the podcast, like you can tie it in because that ends up being it ends up being the Alpine where Got like it. the first okay. few Sound of Furies were. And that show is great. This is hilarious, Dave. I remember that story because I think Creep Division played also. That so a few sense. Nazis show up and it starts like popping off a little bit. And it was so funny because I must have been wearing a baseball hat, right? And I went bald when I was like fucking 20, like some like anti life's lottery that landed on my fucking lap. <laughs> So, like, I'm at the show, we're in a baseball hat, these Nazis start popping off, and there's a square off between the hardcore kids and the fucking Nazis, and I walk around behind them, like, take off my hat, like, chuck it in the corner, and I go on the Nazi side, and then as soon as the fucking thing pops off, I fucking plow this foo as hard as I could, like, right from behind, like, just suckered the fucking biggest guy. Oh, did we lose you again? It was great. (laughs) Well, that's all Hey, any story about Nazis getting smashed is is a great story and needs to be on the pod. They're like, um, oh, we got a fourth man. Oops. <laughs> yeah, the one thing I'll say about this, um, these satellite areas of this like-minded love for hardcore shaking off, you know, the entrenched roots of metal in the scene, like us striving for you know, this kind of straightforward hardcore, it it was like a an unsaid, unwritten thing at the time, but it was just, there was so much like energy and passion of meeting each other and, and having these allies and this fun, like the shows were fun. Like so, it's hard to explain how much fun and how much like everyone was smiling and even, you know, people were moshing hard and everything, but it was just like the best time and, you know, going all the way from, you know, central California all the way down to, you know, the Che or the Empire Club, you know. So 
it was really incredible, but no reply. It, speaking of fun, like I always felt, even though lyrically you're tapping into some, you know, very serious topics, but there's also a lot of tongue in cheek. And I'm going to bring in one of Zach's questions here. Um, the Cherry Coke song is the only one that didn't make it from the demo to the seven inch. And Zach says, why? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, that was uh, like, um, I feel like um, <laughs> I forgot that that song existed until you just reminded me. Um, but uh, I do remember. So like I used to drink so much Cherry Coke. Like that was like. Um, El Taco represent. Yes, absolutely. Fountain Cherry Coke for sure. And then I think like 98, maybe they changed, like they changed the label and taste of Cherry Coke. And like, uh, you know, uh, as the social realist uh, writer that I was, that was like a very important moment for me in my life. Uh, And I like, I remember writing that song and then like, people were like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but like what I so like to me, I like I, I can actually tie this back a little bit more to what you were saying, Dan, is like so, something that separated a lot of those bands and those people was like having a sense of humor and having a sense of like, like not taking themselves too seriously, even though like I can't imagine a group of people that took things more seriously. Right. So what I mean by that is like if there was a show anywhere within like 250 miles of Los Angeles, we were all there no matter what. And we were all like working to support each other. And that was great. Um, But also like we were always just making fun of each other. Everything was like a little bit tongue in cheek and a little bit like um, I knew I was in the right place. So um, PCH festival happened um, right around that time. And Lifesalt played that and I went to go see them. And then um, LaShock played. Do you guys remember LaShock? Yep, Joey. One of, the, one of the great album covers. <laughs> yes, for sure. And um, I worked with all those guys in LaShock, like Todd and, and everybody. And so I was like very excited to see them. And I'm not sure why, but the the um, keyboard player was this, this guy named Daryl. Um, and like he and Todd got in a full fist fight on stage, like um, knock down, drag out. And then like, he got really mad and he smashed his keyboard and he walked away. And in the back, I just heard somebody going, Daryl, Daryl. I was like, I'm in the right place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like no reply in this time was kind of a great uniter band because you guys were so fun. Although you did have some serious lyrics kind of in the way I hate to compare this to you. So don't stab me, Dave. But okay. I remember like, Everyone loved good, clean fun for like the first like seven inch or two. And you guys oh, are like the good version. No, you're like the good version of that. Like they're the, they're the marshmallow falling off the stick into the fire. And you guys are the one where like, Oh, it's a perfectly roasted marshmallow. What's up? You know? And so like everyone could like you guys because you haven't like, you have a great personality on stage. You make everyone feel comfortable. And like, but in between like the banter, it's like blasts of great hardcore. So like everyone can love it from all sides. Do you think that's unfair? Uh, I don't think it's unfair. I just uh, was not expecting to be compared to good, good clean fun uh, yeah, today. Yeah, about to jump out a window. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I do um, like. Yeah, I mean, I I think like 
what felt really important to me about being in no reply was like, um, uh, whenever we would play, like I felt like I was friends with everybody that we were playing with, right. All the bands, the whole audience, all that. And that sense of community, like really, that was the first time that I had ever experienced that really with punk, right? Like, I had gone to a lot of shows and, you know, there's all these like punk songs and memoirs about how you finally feel a sense of community. Like most of the time when I would go to shows in like the early nineties, I was like, well, this kind of sucks, but I like this music. And that was the first time that it clicked for me where I was like, no, this is like a place where I belong. And this is a place where like the relationships that I have with people are um, like paramount, right? Like that's like, like I'm going to go see this show and yes, it's about the music, but it's also about the community of people that are here. Right. Like, and like at that time, like I was, well, I was working at revelation. So I was just like living and breathing hardcore, like every single day. Yeah. I mean, it's a magical time and, and I hope that we've laid it out for the people, right. Because it's like the seeds are planted in all these years of like going to shows and trying to grasp onto anything. And then like kind of the, the seas change and we all like start our own bands or we can do bands that get a little bit of momentum. And at the same time, like there's these clubs popping up all over and it, it just really was a magical time. Like it was like a scene, you know, and a scenes like kind of carved out and separate from a lot of what was going on at the time. Yeah, for sure. Cause, cause at the time, a lot of the orange County bands were, um, really starting to go strong, like Adamantium and, and, um, 18 visions and bands like that. But, but w- what we were doing felt really separate from that. I mean, I, death by stereo kind of crossed over a little bit too, I think. Um, like they, they would just often play shows with us. Um, yeah, I but, think they definitely had one foot in each scene. Yeah. Um, but it was like, um, you know, I, I, I feel like the, um, like the wannabe historian in me is like fascinated by how that all happened. Um, there, there was another, there was an ignite, I believe Tragtello played at like a community center in East LA. And this was really early on, like ni- 96, 97. Actually, that might've been the show I met Ben at. Um, and like, I was like, wow, there's like a lot of like Latino and Chicano, like hardcore kids that I don't see at any other show. And that was like a really big, like wake up call for me. And then like when Crudos came multiple times, like that was also like, I, I think that like LA, the city is like a very, um, the hardcore scene there at the time was like heavily Chicano and, and Latino and, and was like much more diverse than that orange County scene. Um, and I don't, I don't think that like that orange County group of people was like particularly like snobbish or anything, but those worlds just did not meet. Right. Like you would never, other than like, you know, Felix and Ernesto going to strife shows, like you would never see those same people at those same shows. I feel perplexed by it thinking back as well, because you know, those bands that popped were like indecision bands. And then we all had our time with indecision as well. Like he, Dave was kind of like the great uniter, although somehow it it like just didn't click. I don't know if it like, you know, when you're young, like time is so much longer than now, you know, like now, like a year just goes by in the blink of an eye, but back then it's like missing something by six months could mean everything. Right. Like, I don't, I don't know why, no reply isn't on like a giant adamantium show. It happens later with over my body playing like 
the last adamantium show, but for whatever reason, those two scenes just never merged. And it's a shame because it, it could have been something great and special. Although it's one of those things like looking back, like I'd change everything, but I changed nothing, you know, like yeah. would our thing have been as special if it wasn't like carved out? I don't think so. And, and I think that like it also that space and like time that we all had where nobody was paying attention was really important because I think it allowed us all to like actually be real friends with each other and not, you know, like I would say like, as time went on, like, you know, um, and especially as hardcore in my mind got bigger, it was harder to have that feeling, right? Like, like you could still make really good friendships and stuff, but because it was bigger and more like this, the stakes, I guess felt different or like, you know, you never <laughs> like, you know, Dan, when like I would meet you at a show where like you guys were ripping the sleeves off things and like, I, I don't know what you were doing. Like there was no p- point in my head where I was like, well, this guy just wants to be a rock star, right? <laughs> like, yeah, like, this is like, this person is here just to have fun. And like that, that, that sort of vibe, I think was super contagious, especially early on. Right. I also think in 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 this little thing of ours, the, <laughs> the Costa Nostra. Yes, exactly. There was a. And what, what were your fingers okay. doing when you said that right now? <laughs> I was just, I, I was doing a a gabagool with my hands. Um, I, I, but the thing is, with that, there was um, a concerted effort to. I mean, there wasn't even texting yet. Nope. <laughs> you know, there was a concerted effort of making a phone call and be like, hey, we're going to come up and hang out in L.A. Um, let's carve out a day to just chill. And it wasn't like show related or anything, you know. Um, I, I think it, goes beyond, be like it goes beyond that, Dan. Like, yeah. I hate to toss out another terrible metaphor for you to shit on my head about. But like, <laughs> it, it it's reminds like me. Fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm Hey, I am forever indebted about that dave i'm sorry <laughs> no but like you know the really hardcore at that time like it reminds me like i when i moved to san diego i lived in pb for like a few years and like i don't know i think we even had texting then but we never texted each other like just all my friends we would go and show up at the same bar every night and it was yeah. like the hardcore scene of that time was like kind of the same where i don't think i ever talked to you on the phone dave right no. like it was just okay well this show's happening I know who I'm going to see there. It was just like a flyer would come out. I don't even know how we saw it. And then well, we would usually just, at record stores. Yeah. Yeah. And then we would just go, it was just like, okay, we know the shows we're going to, everyone's going to show up. We're going to get to see our giant group of friends. This is great. Yeah. Like there's, there's really no communication or planning. It's like this weird thing that I don't know if it can ever be replicated. The only, the only, the only uh, signpost, like, you know, telegraph was the rev board, you know? Yeah, and like, I hated like ninety percent of the people on there. What's that? I said, and I hated like ninety percent of the people on there, and basically oh, any course, message board. But I'm saying it was good for getting the the word out about a show. For sure, yeah. Dave. Let's let talk me, about. Let me round back, uh, if I may, Zach and Dave, to uh, lyrical content of no reply, because we've touched on you know definitely having a sense of humor, but you know there was something that you were definitely trying to say, like with, I'm still fucking pissed, you know, shades of gray. I want your guts. Something about like really demanding 
the anger and the the passion out of hardcore kids is that something that you didn't really see going on as much or something as you were like listening to more and more hardcore and getting deeper into it and just i don't know wanting to express that um well i think it goes back to something we were talking about before is like um when you see like again like a lot of the hardcore and punk and indie rock at the time was very like um uh, this is my memory of it, which is uh, obviously like through the lens of my own biases and whatever, but like, you know, like you would go see a band and you would know that the band was like performing to like perform. Right. And, um, I think a big piece of that was that like punk was actually pretty big around that time. Right. This is like a post Nirvana post green day time. So you could go see like, I don't know, like, I, I don't want to like, I'd religion. some, bad religion and like it it just it felt very manufactured right um and it felt very inauthentic in some ways um i mean it was still cool to see bands you know like i I went to go see anti-nowhere league at like the showcase and you know like i was like talking to this guy beforehand and i was like he had an english accent but he was dressed normally and i was like oh okay that guy was cool and then that guy turned out to be animal <laughs> <laughs> no cod piece while you were talking. and he was wearing like he got changed into like a whole leather outfit to play the show and i was like man like is this really like the scene that i'm involved in where you have to like get like <laughs> put on chaps to play like yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's a ridiculous example. Cause I don't think anybody took it yeah. particularly seriously, but <laughs> like, uh, but I will say that like when I saw life's halt or when I saw like even carry on, like I was like, wow, these are just people that just, just are doing it, you know, like, um, or like in control, like is like a great example of that. This is like, <laughs> there was no difference between Ryan on stage and off stage at a show, right? It's <laughs> the most like wild person doing the most wild things. Right. And like, when I saw that or when I felt that, like, I just felt really inspired by the fact that people were like, I'm doing this thing because I want to do it. And I don't care if anybody is like watching or if this is like, um, if this is something that like, you know, lots of people are going to see, like I'm doing something that's really true to myself and true to my heart. And you, you guys talked a little bit about uh, like life's halts lyrics. And I mean, I think for me, like they were like the ultimate example of that. They were just such an inspirational band for me. There's, there's a life's halt song um, uh, called America in which um, Ernesto talks about like, um, people saying America, love it or leave it. And all the members of life's halt had come from places that like America had destroyed. Like Felix was from El Salvador. Right. Like, and like, and like, I had never, I had never heard a peer of mine talk in ways like that. Right. Where they were like connecting the political reality of things to their own lived experience and the ways in which their lives were affected by that and being like genuinely angry about that. Like I, there were plenty of bands that were like talking about the plight of like, whatever, like, uh, um, you know, like, uh, indigenous people 400 years ago. And I'm not saying that that's bad, but like, that's not, it wasn't as authentic as like, this is who I am. And this is the lived experience that I have. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, Like legit lived recent experience from like the 1980s when he was a child. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so for me, like no reply was all about trying to capture some of that. And, and I think the context is really important because there were all of these like really heady metal bands playing, um, like botch and stuff like that. And, and like, I, I there's a lot of that stuff that I like, so I'm, I'm not saying it's bad. I, it just didn't click for me in the same way, right? Like it didn't like burn inside you like something that is almost intellectual intellectualizing like government policy to ruining lives elsewhere being felt within communities on your doorstep, you know? Like Yeah, and I mean I guess the other thing that I would say is like I I had a lot of like um like I was like a, you know, I, I think a lot of people that get into punk and hardcore, like are mad about a lot of stuff. Right. And that, that is like, now I don't know where a lot of that goes for people like, you know, um, but hardcore and punk was such a constructive and like, I don't know, just like a very like, um, positive way to like move all of those feelings of feeling like, you didn't belong in like a larger American society or you didn't belong in like, you know, um, uh, with no reply. Like I, I felt like I was writing a lot of stuff about like what I saw and what I felt every day. Right. And what I saw and what I felt was like living in LA at the time, um, was like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you guys remember this, but like the rampart police scandal was happening then. What um, yeah, yeah, that that was one of the one of the songs um on uh, the split with Life's Halt was like and and it just blew my mind that nobody that I knew cared about that or was talking about that. Um or that like when I would go when I drive in to see friends in Echo Park, which is now super ritzy, like there were like police barricades and you couldn't get in because they closed they closed the neighborhood except to residents because they claimed that it was like a drug dealing area. Right. Like, and I, like, I didn't hear anybody talking about that and there wasn't really internet yet. So there wasn't, or I, I guess there was, but like, I wasn't connected to it. Right. So not, not, there wasn't high speed internet where you can Google anything. Exactly. Well, there definitely wasn't Google yet. Uh, or if there was, it was like, um, it was just like a couple of people in like Palo Alto or something, but, but, um, yeah. So anyways, that, that is a long winded way of saying that like no reply to me felt like you know, in previous bands, I had been writing lyrics that were like based on lyrics that I had heard before. Right. Like, you know, if they write a song about this, I'll write a song about this. But, but I think what changed for me in no reply was that like, I was like, okay, no, I'm actually going to write about like me and like what I'm seeing and what I'm experiencing. And some of it might be stupid, like cherry Coke. And some of it might be like, seem ridiculous to other people, but like, um, you know, even at the time, like the, 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 uh, the song SUVFU came from like, uh, Kevin Chafee and I talking as we were driving to Santa Cruz one time about like how fucking stupid it was that every car on these LA freeways was this giant gas guzzling SUV. And there were a bunch of Humvees too, um, yeah. which is in, in retrospect, insane that that was a popular car. Right. Yeah. The minivan switched to being an SUV or a Humvee. Totally. Yeah. Um, and just this concept of like very conspicuous consumption when um, like a lot of LA looked like um, 
you guys have seen the movie Heat, right? Of course. You know, you know, like the L.A. that's depicted in that movie is like really the L.A. that I remember really well. It was like very gritty and industrial. And then you would go to these like parts and and people would be driving their Escalades and it was very well manicured. And that was really off putting for me because, um, you know, Boston had a cheer of issues, but it, it wasn't like that in terms of like clear wealth disparity at the time. It, it definitely got there, but it wasn't at the time. Right, because Dave, at one point you were living in LA, like in an apartment above like the Garment District. Is that right? Like we should kind of clarify where you're at. I lived on Sixth and Spring, which is um, now like a pretty hot neighborhood. But at the time, it was like, I mean, there was no grocery store. There was no. I paid. I want to say I paid like 145 bucks a month for rent. Um, and it was like, um. Yeah, it was pre-gentrification downtown L.A., right? It was like the dying days of, like, Bukowski's L.A., right? Yeah. Let's talk about No Reply, like, you guys taking it on the road and, like, how were you received? What do you, what do you think is, like, the lasting impression of the band, like, to you? Like, what is, what is the history of the band? Where does it stand? Uh, well, so we, we, we had played a bunch of shows all over California, um, but I don't think we had ever played out of state prior to doing a national tour. Um, with but California, what's that? With life's halt, right? Yeah. So we had talked summer of 2000. We were really excited to like actually do a tour. Um, and at this point, I just want to like mention that uh, Mandel was just like such an instrumental figure for us uh, and for me personally. I mean, he's the guy that basically taught me how to be hardcore, right? Not, not the style stuff, but the like, here's how to book a show. Here's how to like book a tour. Here's how to like put out a record. Here's how, like he, he was the first friend I had that like was really doing hardcore at a high level. You know, like I worked at Rev, so I knew Jordan pretty well, but Jordan didn't feel like a real person to me. You know, he, he had been involved for so long that, that it didn't feel like one of my peers. Right. Um, but Mandel was like, look, you guys should do a tour. Like you should book a tour. There's nothing that's stopping you from booking a tour. Uh, and, and we were all like, I don't know. Like we, we, we don't really know very much about logistics. And, uh, if you know, life salt, you know, they're, they're not great with logistics. Um, and so we just basically like booked a tour. I, I mean, I still can't believe we did that. Like we, we booked a tour just by like sort of cold calling people all around the country. Um, and like the most like indicative show was the first show we played was Mandel was like, Oh, you guys should play Omaha. Omaha is like a Mecca of punk and hardcore. And we were like, really? Okay. This sounds great. So we drove straight from LA to Omaha to like <laughs> play this show. And we, <laughs> it was one of those where like you, you had to like call the kid from a payphone who was putting the show on when you got to the town and so we called him and he had a beeper or something. And he's like, oh, I'm at work at like this orange Julius stand in the mall. <laughs> Dude. So we, we went to the mall and he was like, oh, hey, man, uh, you guys excited for the show? And we were like, yeah. And he was like, did you fly her? And we we're like, no, we're from 2000 miles away from here. <laughs> and he's like, oh, man, well, I didn't fly her either. Oh, no. Uh, and then uh, 
you know, he was so, oh, also he was like, Mandel was like, yeah, when Adamantium and uh, Throwdown, or I can't remember who Adamantium was on tour with, but he was like, it was the biggest show. There were 500 kids there. And I was like, I thought Adamantium played here and you did that show. And he's like, Adamantium is the biggest band in Omaha. <laughs> and right when he said that, this guy walked by at the ball wearing an Adamantium shirt. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so then we we showed up at the show and he's like, well, no one's going to be here. And I got to be honest with you, it's going to cost like $26 to like have electricity here. Uh, so I can't let you play the show. So we were just like, we'll pay $26 and we'll play the show to ourselves. And like Life's Halt and No Reply and this band, this emo band called the Vita Blue. We just played a show against like against uh, <laughs> with each other to each other. Um, and there were much better shows on that tour. Like we played... Uh, in Chicago with, um, I want to say Crudos played it. We stayed with Martin. I can't remember if Crudos played or not, but it was a big show. And, and then we did the whole East Coast with Kill Your Idols, um, who were also just a really important band to us because they they just did it the right way. You know, like they did it. Um, they were super responsive and just wanted to play music. Um, so we played a bunch of those shows. And then on the way back, back oh i should also mention the logistics of this tour were that we had westbrook's passenger van and there were we took all the seats out of it and there were just like a mattress in the back of it and then there was 12 of us i think or 13 of us and it was like 150 degrees and like people's like sweaty arms were touching each other while we're dry. it was so gross like i i can't believe we made it across the country like that uh and then we felix somehow like had an unregistered cargo van that we had all the equipment in. And so I would always try to drive that cargo van with Felix. Um, but like, you know, it, it was dumb stuff. Like none of us had a cell phone. And at one point in the mountains of North Carolina, like the vans got separated and we're like, well, I guess that's the end of tour. We'll never see them again. <laughs> this story has given me way too much PTSD, dude. I'm sorry. Sorry. I got to go to uh, the break. For real. <laughs> the, the, and um, the kind of backbone of this tour was that Indecision had just put out the No Reply Life's Halt split, but the covers weren't ready yet. So there were all these interesting, fun tour covers, right? Yeah. So so um, the way that Dave Mandel supported us, among other things, was being like, I want to put out a split record for this tour. So Life's Halt and No Reply both went in and recorded with Rusty um, just like on an afternoon in like May ish, I want to say, um, before we went on the tour and then Dave put out the records, but they were no, the covers weren't ready when we were ready to tour. And then, um, I suggested that we get a, <laughs> that we do like a Ku Klux clam from the Simpsons, um, cover, um, cause I, like, I was just obsessed with the Simpsons at the time. And for whatever reason, Dave was like, yeah, that's a great idea. And then, um, Ernie had to make some because, um, they had a show at Gilman street and just like the, the covers really spiraled. Uh, and I am not the best person to talk to about that, except that I will say that I did convince Dave to make a, a Benson cover. You guys remember the sitcom yeah. Benson, <laughs> which is your favorite cover of, of all of them? Cause there's. There's a great one. And obviously the last press of it has all the the one-off covers on the cover. Um, well, my favorite one was the Circle Jerks one because Igby is Igby. Photoshopped in there. And he wasn't allowed to have one of that press. 
<laughs> that sounds right. He's still not yeah. allowed, I think. Like, yeah, that's the rip. Yeah. <laughs> that definitely sounds right. I'm, I'm like, really wondering what person listening to this podcast is going to be interested that Igby was not on the... <laughs> It's not a lot of record, but I, I uh, this is very inside baseball, but I enjoyed it. Well, so as this tour is kind of wrapping up, you know, you're getting ready to come back. Does you already know that you're going to kind of, you've been applying for graduate school, right? Um, yeah. So I knew I was going to move back to the, to the East coast. Um, and um, my lease on that apartment in downtown LA was up. And so I was actually homeless for like, uh, not really homeless, but like didn't have a place to live for a couple of months. And I just ended up living with Mandel and he ended up showing me like all these things about California that I didn't know existed. Like I had never been to the ocean. <laughs> uh, I hadn't really been to the beach. So we did like the Corona Del Mar rock jump and all these things. And I was like, wow, California is great. And then we played the last show, for no reply in August, 2000. And then I remember I left from that show, like in my, I had a Saturn, like I just like walked out of that show, got Navy in my Saturn. Blue. What's that? It was a Navy blue Saturn. I, I don't remember what color it was, but I um, uh, one of the pranks that people used to play on me at Rev was put every sticker they could on the car. <laughs> so like I had like a Judas factor sticker on there. I had like, I had a sticker that said like, I love Van Halen. I had like all these crazy stickers on the car because actually it was Jeff from game face thought that that was the funniest thing on earth to constantly be putting stickers on my car. Um, but I, I remember we played that show and that was the most meaningful show that I've ever played in any band. Like it was great. Like it was, it was like a, it was like the end of a movie, you know, <laughs> like, real. That, that's in my, that's in my top 10 hardcore shows of all time. Still, uh, that, show, that show meant the world to, I mean, what was so cool as Zach and I being able to do this interview with you right now is you knew it was going to be, you know, a really well-attended, awesome show. And IC and OMDB were, you know, kind of starting to an extent. IC had been around a little bit longer, but you made sure both our bands were on that show. Yes. Go ahead, Zach. Sorry. Oh, that's all I got. I didn't say anything. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I remember like, um, like I remember being v very emotional at that show because, um, you know, I, I, I it was really, I, I wasn't really enjoying living in Southern California, right? Like it was a really tough lifestyle for me. Um, among other things, like I was commuting from downtown LA to Orange County to work and stuff. And like, that was a lot. Like it was, it, I didn't have any money and I didn't really have like a very stable life, but the hardcore scene was like the best. I mean, I guess that's what happens when you like prioritize hardcore above everything, right? <laughs> Parts of your life end up lacking a little bit. Um, but, but like, um, but I remember just this feeling of feeling overwhelmed that like I had been a part of building something and that show was like, I mean, I remember um, Over My Dead Body had just started at that point, uh, maybe, what, like six months prior to that? Is it, um, does that sound right? Yeah, you actually, no reply, played our first show at the Che. I, I remember that. I definitely remember that. And then In Control had, 
had basically just started at that time too. And, and I, I believe that carry on was just putting out its first bridge nine record, right? No, it, uh, it all kind of runs together. It was probably around the time of the second carry or the, the Todd Jones carry on seven inch. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's yeah. Um, but I, I remember being like, wow, like it seems like stuff is really going to start to take off and I'm leaving. But I also feel like, like I said, it, it like, um, you know, in like an eighties movie where like, <laughs> there's like a character goes through a bunch of stuff and they meet a bunch of people. And then at the end, there's like a party scene where everybody's there dancing, right? Yeah. Like that, that's <laughs> what it felt like. Like I just was looking out in the crowd and like, every person there was somebody I had met over the previous three or four years. Um, and like it was, everybody was there together and just like so happy and excited. And like, I don't know, like I, I, I can't, it's really hard to put into words why that was so special to me, but it really was, it was a great show. Well, and it right? had to be at the PCH as well. Like it just was, yeah, it was perfect. Everything about it was perfect. Yeah, I'm I, I I'm with that. I think Esperanza played too, right? No, missing twenty third. Missing twenty third played. Okay, okay. Um, but yeah, I I remember like some some of the like most memorable no reply shows that we played. Zach, we played Laser Star with you guys. I think it was one of In Control's first shows, right? I don't remember. <clears throat> to be honest with you, sorry. Okay, well I I've. <laughs> It I remember been, that. Played, it could have been with Standard Ground, right? I can't remember if you played it because In Control only played Laser Star once. We played the very last show at Laser Star. So it could, I think it might have been. It might have been Carry On, No Reply, In Control. So, that sounds right. Yeah. Um, but, and then we played the Vets Hall in Santa Cruz with like um, Carry On and Nerve Agents. That was a great show. I, I loved that show. And then, and then, um, we played some really great shows at the Shea too. Like, and what was great about like that is like you had these venues like PCH and the Shea, and um, I know Oxnard like struggled with venues, but every time there was a show in Oxnard, it was like a great show. Um, and I don't know, like that just really those things really allowed um, that scene to germinate in some pretty crazy ways. And there, there was such a like harmony between especially Shea and PCH, right? Like there was a lot of osmosis between those two places. hundred percent. And like the ethics of the clubs, Dave, so you, you moved back to Boston and, and how do you feel like, is this, does it feel like a breakup? Because you do have this like crescendo at the end of like your run in California. And how do you like get your footing? Not, not in like your career and your, your collegiate experience, but like, how do you feel missing out on the hardcore? And then how do you come around to starting another band? Um, well, Boston was a, <laughs> was a very different place than um, Southern California. Um, I mean, uh, I, I showed up in Boston at a really weird time for the, for Boston's sort of hardcore scene because that um, like nineties wave of Boston hardcore bands had all broken up, right? Like 10 yard fight, fast break in my eyes. Um, like I, I think I was there, I moved back right as in my eyes was having their last show. And so Boston was kind of the opposite of Southern California, which is there were like tons of kids, but no bands. Right. Whereas, uh, in Southern California, there were tons of bands, but no kids. Um, <laughs> Too real. Um, and 
like American Nightmare was was just just starting. In fact, Amer- uh, No Reply played one of American Nightmare's first shows when we played in Boston, um, and I was close with um, like a few people in Boston that I had met from tours. Like I was really close with Detox, who was Kill Your Idols' roadie, who went to Boston University. Um, and then I immediately like became friends through him with like stop and think and, and that group of people. Um, but it was just a very different, Boston was like, a. um, it's almost like hardcore is like the industry of Boston or something, right? Like there, it was just like, um, it was a more, I mean, I, I guess you used this term Zach before it was like a more professional scene, right? Like was people that like moved there, like Hope Conspiracy moved there to be a touring band, right? Um, that wasn't really happening in Southern California at the time. And so that was a big adjustment for me. Um, and I remember like uh, I had booked a bunch of shows in Southern California and I was like, oh, I'll book shows in Boston. And I like <laughs> booked Hope Conspiracy on a show being like, like called them and was like, Hey, do you guys want to play this show that I'm doing at the first and second church? And they were like, yeah, we do. And then their booking agent called me and was so mad at me. And I was like, sorry, I didn't know. I had no idea. Like that this was like a, that I had to go through you. I'm sorry. I just, I like, I was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so that, that was a little bit of a rude awakening. And, but the, I do think that there was, the saving grace in Boston when I moved there was that because like the scene had kind of fallen apart and a lot of those popular bands were gone, that there was kind of a similar sense to Southern California in the sense that people were like, well, we have to build this from scratch again. Yeah. Um, Bane, AN, HopeCon, that's kind of like the triumvirate to start. But then where does Suicide File fit? Like, how do you, how do you gather, you know, steam to, you know, I think Jared, you knew from Death by Stereo, right? Yeah. So um, when No Reply played Dallas, <laughs> I think it was the second to last show of that No Reply Life's Hall tour. We met up with the Adamantium Death by Stereo tour. Bane, yeah. Um, no, Debane was definitely not there because there was nobody there, right? Like it was, <laughs> it was like in a basement somewhere in dallas um oh, and probably stayed on the east coast as the west coast band started going back west probably that sounds right but like that show like um uh, zach I'm, I'm not trying to give you more ptsd but like <laughs> you know at the end of a tour like that you're just like you stick like i felt like kevin McHale on the 1987 celtics like my whole body was sore i i had like um like an eye infection in both eyes from like not sleeping. (laughs) Like I was just so fucking tired. And, and like when we played, um, like, I mean, you know, Ephraim's sense of humor, he just decided that he and, um, it's a singer of animation. His name, Aaron stone. were just going to like wreck me. Like their, their only goal in life was to destroy me. So they were like doing, like lifting me up over their head and like slamming me into the ground while we were trying to play the show. And Jared was like, man, you're the punkest singer I've ever seen, bro. (laughs) Dave, did you know that uh, Bedge actually paid them to do that? (laughs) That's that's, that's just karma, you know? Uh, But yeah, I think the universe, the universe, uh, 
the universe took Bedge's side on that one. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so when I was back in Boston, um, this is uh, um, I knew uh, this woman Becca. Um, you probably knew her, Dan. She she um, she was like an Orange County hardcore um, kid, and then she moved to Boston. And she was always like, oh, you got to call Jared. He really wants to be in a band with you. Um, and I was like, I don't, I mean, I met him a couple of times, but I don't, you know, I don't know about this. And then I finally get some phone call from Jared. Um, again, this was all pretexting. He's like, hey, man, me and Naraj have this band and we're going to sound like the third degree. And we want you to sing for it. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't really like the third degree very much, but I'll give it a shot. Um, You're crazy. That. That seven inch is great. I, uh, it grew on me, uh, but that wasn't what like I wanted my band to sound like. Right? No, for like, sure. Look, Suicide File was a an interesting right turn for you after doing No Reply, right? Well, yeah, because I think well, Jared. I mean, Jared and Naraj were writing all the music, right? Like I wasn't writing any of the music. So, um, and the way that Naraj and Jared like pitched it to me was that they wanted to do like more traditional skate type type hardcore. But I think that Naraj is just such a unique like songwriter that it didn't end up sounding like that. Yeah. It, it has, it has nothing like that in it. It's uh, so much more, I don't know, musically verbose in a way. Like it, it's, it's not basic, even though but I, I, I disagree in a way. Like it does sound basic. like, someone like Naraj is going in with like a third degree mission statement and then adding his own flavor. I think that that really lays a groundwork for what suicide file sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. A, a, a song for tonight is, is the antithesis of that. Yeah. I think that was later. I mean, like, like so early on the band was just me, Jared and Naraj and like the three of us were just practicing. And then um, American nightmare was recording a seven inch. I want to say at, at, with Kurt at God city and Jared was like, Kurt, can I just leave my, I got a band. Can I just leave my drum set up and can we just do a demo? Um, and Kurt was like, yeah, no problem. Um, and I think we had to buy Kurt like some Indian food or something to do that. <laughs> um, but um, we, when we recorded the demo, it was just me, Naraj and Jared. Um, and then I lived with carpet bag uh, and Carpetbag was in was in a band with. Uh, this is a great band lineup. Do you guys know about Take Control? You must know about Take Control, right, Dan? Um, I I don't know. I mean, it was like your kind of inside joke when we came out and <laughs> used his van, and then we got in the fucking uh, loft in his van, and it collapsed on us. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, loft almost died. Yeah, this all sounds this all this all tracks. Um well so take control was like what would have happened if like that band algorithm like had a bug in it because it was like a, a lot of people that ended up being in like really good bands but all playing the wrong instruments. Yeah. So like Sweet Pete played bass. <laughs> Carpetbag played drums. Chris Corey was in it and Spalding sang. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and actually that ended up being like the project salty demo eventually. But, but, um, but anyway, so I recruited carpet bag out of, uh, take control. Um, and, um, 
then Naraj asked Jason to be in the band. And then we started playing shows like pretty shortly after that. But I think like something that held us back initially was that like Naraj was kind of going back and forth between Chicago and Boston. Um, uh, because I can't remember why actually, um, I, I think it was for school or for something else, but, um, so we, we couldn't play as many shows as we wanted to early on. And then eventually, um, Boston's hardcore scene was like bifurcated in the same way that, um, the Orange County LA thing was, there were like a lot of faster bands, but they didn't play with like the, the larger bands. Right. Um, so there was like a team, um, prowl, uh, all, all those bands. Um, like and that was band. like, say that again, like the think I care bands. Like, those. yeah, exactly. Um, and so that when I moved to Boston, I was like, these are the bands that I really like. This is the, the scene that I feel most comfortable in. It's the most analogous to LA. And, um, so that's how I met Jimmy from a team. And then he joined suicide file while Naraj was in Chicago so that we could play with, with two guitar players. Um, but, um, like that we, we recorded the demo. Um, and then the first show that we played was a show that I booked at, um, first and second church. And it ended up, I, I mean, I, it's actually t- 20 years ago, this December 1st, um, it was, um, like every hardcore band that ended up playing a lot over the next two or three years all playing together for the first time. It was like invasion, stop and think dedication, panic, suicide file and Bane. Um, and that was the first time that I ever did a show that had like 600 people at it. Right. Like I did a lot of shows in California, but there was never more than who, however many people fit in the PCH club. Right. And so I, th- I think that that was like a little bit of a wake up call for me that like things were going to be a little different with suicide file. Well, also, I feel like the mentality of the, even though it's a tight knit scene, like your whole mission Hill, like crew and everything, it still has a very different vibe than what you were used to in SoCal. Right. Like, even though you're an East coaster, was it hard to like kind of code switch back into that kind of, I don't know, much more. Yes. uh, For lack of a jockish, uh, you know, in the true like sports fan element, not necessarily like people wanting to fight people at shows, you know? Yeah, it was a very, um, it was a very different vibe, like for sure. Um, there was like, you know, it was like Southern California without a lot of the like goofiness and earnestness. Um, like I think it was a much more cynical place, like in general. Um, but that being said, I, I do think that there was like a critical mass of enough people that were like really cool, interesting and um, like fun that I, I was able to find a group of people. But it, it wasn't as wasn't as easy as it was in California. Right. It's like the thing that we talked about earlier uh, in this interview where I was like, Zach, if I like ran into you at a show, I'd be like, well, that's Zach. He's at every show like. I know he's a great guy and I know that if like I need something or whatever, like that, that he's going to like 
you know, like if I book his band on a show, he'll book my band on a show, all that. Right. And when I got to Boston, it was like a sort of Byzantine maze of like booking agents and people that were like, I don't want to play this show because this other show is bigger or like, um, it was a little more violent to like people yeah. had beefs with each other and stuff like that. And that's not really stuff that I was particularly FSU in. stuff. Th- that wasn't really happening at the time. Um, no. There was like a little hiatus where um, things in Boston were really calm around that. Um, it started up again after that, but like um, most of the like FSU people that were in hardcore at that time were like very level-headed, normal, yeah, nice people. Right. Why are they mad? The Pats win in 01. It's bullshit. Uh, I will say that that was uh, formative for me. The Pats winning that Super Bowl was like one of the greatest. Uh, <laughs> well, I, like, I used to talk to you a lot on AIM around yeah. those times. And you were like, I think this Tom Brady is, he's, I think he's a good player. <laughs> and, yeah, unfortunately, he was. It's um, a hard is this why you felt the need, like, you know, the scene is different, there's booking agents, there's a little bit almost pro, like, needs in some of these things? Is this why you went with Indecision instead yes. of, like, doing a B9 or something like that? Because it it's the punkness you knew and you, like, ur- urgently went for that? Yeah, and I, I felt a lot of loyalty to Mandel because, I mean, like I said, I, he literally was like, oh, you don't have a place to live? Live in my house for a month and a half, right? Like, um, And we, so when I worked at Rev, he was the desk across from me too. Uh, and so like we worked together every day and like just uh, would go to Del Taco for lunch every day and all that. And like that was just somebody that I really trusted and respected. Um and it's not that I didn't feel that way about like Chris Bridge Nine. It's, it wasn't, but I I just didn't know him in that way, right? Like, um, and so doing a record with Indecision was like exactly what we wanted to do. And then we got to tour with Count Me Out right after that, and that was great, right? Like, and that was like a scene that I felt very comfortable and and happy in. Yeah. Well, um, shout out to the biker. What's up? Yeah, sorry, that's. Uh, I don't apologize for that. <laughs> no, I don't care. I'm recording this while driving down the PCH on my chopper. <laughs> Dave, you play your first show and it's, it's huge. And then in 02, you put out your first seven inch and two splits and basically suicide file takes off pretty quick. How does this like validation feel to you? Because, you know, while no reply caught on pretty well, the scene was small and now you're like, you're getting validation from like a lot of people. Like, how does this feel? Um, I, I, I think it was hard for me because I think like, um, that was the first time that that had really happened to me. Right. Like, um, as you mentioned, Zach, no reply felt like a very organic, like no reply was a very like input output band where like, if we played a show with a band, we knew we were going to be friends with them probably forever because we were nice. And like, you know, if we vibed with you, like then that became part of our circle. Right. But with suicide file, the volume was so much greater, right? Like, you know, we were playing so many more shows. We were meeting so many more bands and we were playing in front of so many more kids that like, you know, like 
it didn't feel as intimate and it didn't feel as, um, well, I guess authentic, right? Like um, the music we were playing felt authentic. And we, when we played in Boston with our friends and stuff, that felt super authentic. But if we, you know, like we would do things like um, we would get put on like a random like show with like a larger band and nobody would care about us. Or, you know, like we would play, um, we would play, a sh- we played a show in like Cincinnati with Count Me Out and, um, uh, hope conspiracy and like a bunch of courage crew guys showed up and like, I was like, this isn't really like the vibe that I <laughs> know and love. Right. Um, and I think that that was a little bit of a wake up call for me. Um, I, I think Jared, Jared really wanted to be in a, in a big band mainly because Jared is just really talented, right? Like that, that's like what he cared about. And I, I don't think he did that. I, I am not passing any judgment on Jared. Like I, I think he deserved, he deserves that, right? Like he, music was his career, right? And music for me was about more about like community building and, and meeting people. And, and like, to me, the most important thing about being in a band was being able to like go to a show and say that like, I knew people there, I could let kids in the back door and like, whatever, like that's what made it magical and fun for me. And that just was harder to do in Suicide File, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jared should be like the drummer of Shakira, you know. Well, he, I mean, he's the drummer for My Chemical Romance now, you know. Yeah, but Shakira is actually good. Oh, oh so, excuse me. Sorry, he <laughs> no, does have that that really like Latin rhythm that I think would. But it, it sounds, Dave. It sounds like you're dancing around this a little bit, though. Like, sorry to nail in. Like, there has to like. You you feel like some of like this is inauthentic, but it is authentic. People like connecting with you and your music. Like there has to be some validation in there. You're not feeling this at all. No, I was okay. I, you know what it is. I, I the, the, having this conversation with you always making me understand it a little bit. Is like when No Reply would play, it was a very authentic thing for me because nobody was projecting anything right? Like nobody wanted us to be anything different than what we were, right? Like if you came to see No Reply, you were like, probably like had like hit your head at some point really hard and were interested in like watching a fast, hardcore band with me telling a lot of jokes, right? But like with Suicide File, like there were people in Boston that I think really wanted us to be a big band or, you know, like would project things onto me or be mad at me about things or whatever. And, and like people that I hadn't met, right? And that was just a different, that was a very different experience because I had lost the personal connection, right? Like, so to give you an example of that is like, um, you know, like we played a show in Boston and like some kid was so mad at me that the show had a barrier, right? And I get that. Like, I would be mad too if I was at a show and there was a barrier. But I think we had been asked like at the last minute to open for AFI or something and we were like, yeah, we'll do that. And like having somebody be that mad at me about that was like a reminder and a wake up call that like I was not in a place where everybody knew who I was or like people, I guess like, so later on when I became a high school principal, I also felt this, which is like when you're the principal of a school, it's like whatever people feel about authority, they're going to project that onto you. Right. And in no, in no reply, you know, 
I felt like people in Southern California knew who I was and knew like how I was. But in Boston, like there was a moment there where we were like a hyped up band. And so people really didn't like that. There were people that didn't like that. There were people that were mad about that. There were people that were like, you're selling out or whatever. And I was doing the same thing that I had always done. But I think that that was a really hard adjustment for me because I had gotten so much value out of the relationships that I had built through hardcore and punk. And so that was really jarring and, and shocking for me. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, you you were a hyped up band amongst a hyped up scene. Do you know what I mean? Like that scene yeah. was, was conquering America, really. It was the, if you liked fast hardcore, pretty much you looked to Boston at that point in time. And it's what's interesting, I think, on a personal level for you, your input to the band, because the band is incredibly talented and musical and, you know, the first seven inch on indecision. I know the band wasn't that happy with the recording compared, but then when you do twilight and I want to like touch on the way you evolved lyrically, like you really seem to tap into a lot more uh, politically driven lyrics, but still um, you also evolve in the poetic nature of writing these. Obviously, you still have songs like I Hate You and things like that that are very blunt and very uh, carrying on from the no reply thing. But then, you know, you've got things like Ashcroft and W and, and you know, dealing with the politics of the day in a, in a really poetic way. Like, what was your intention lyrically uh, going forward into The Suicide File? Well, um I mean, a lot of it was context, right? Like, um, I, I think that like, um, the seven inch we recorded in Brooklyn with Dean, uh, and I actually think the seven inch sounds great. I, I, um, I think that, um, uh, but we recorded in Brooklyn and we were there like maybe a month after nine 11, right? Like we, we went down there and I think the seven inch is not particularly like tuned into what was going on politically because it was like all written pre nine 11. Right. Like it was all when like the seven inch was like, basically like I was still more in the like no reply, like the personal is political realm of things. Um, but once the like war on terror, such as it was started, Um, I started, I mean, I just started being really mad about a lot of that stuff. Right. And, um, what was crazy is that the hardcore scene, especially in Boston was a pretty reactionary place, right? Like, you know, like, like I remember straight up people wearing like, um, you know, like, uh, NYPD shirts to shows and stuff like that. I, I can't imagine that that is an okay thing to do now, but, um, and, you know, like there was sort of like a, a weird, like uh, homophobic and misogynistic side to Boston hardcore as well. Um, and I think that it felt really important to like call some of that stuff out. Um, and I remember, so when we played in Seattle, um, Nick Turner, who had been in deficit and then was in cold sweat was like, you guys are the only band like in the bridge nine world that is like being political. And, you know, 
that is not new territory for punk or for hardcore, but it kind of is for this scene, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't really something that people were doing at the time, right? Like um, most of the Boston hardcore bands at the time were doing like really personal stuff like American Nightmare or like sort of vaguely like raging stuff like Hope Conspiracy, right? Where like this could be about like my dad or it could be about the president, but who knows, right? Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, like I think that what I wanted to do lyrically in Suicide File was be as specific as possible, but like point the point the pen in a lot of different directions. Right. Um, and like, I also felt like, um, like I was really, um, you know, a, the records that I was listening to at the time, um, one, one record that I was listening to at the time that like, I think is kind of a weird record to be constantly listening to was, um, that first go-go's record. Um, and there's songs on that record that are so, sort of all about like, like this is what the veneer of things is. This is what the like, um, this is what the outside world sees. But underneath that is like something that is like really rotting beneath that. And that was kind of the theme lyrically for almost every suicide file song, like looking at like, um, the suburbs as that, or looking at the political system like that, or looking at a relationship like that, where like on the surface, this looks like it's clean and sanitized and nice, but underneath is something deeper and darker and like more, um, uh, like rotting away. Um, I, th- I, there's a go-, go, sorry, go ahead. I, w- I was going to say the the reason that suicide file connected with me so much beyond you know the the records being incredibly listenable and the music being great is i really loved the f- the juxtaposition of you dealing with all these political themes but also the straight up desperation uh that would be you know i i suppose probably being side by side with an in that kind of world i mean it's hard not to be influenced by such a juggernaut like that you know their influence went everywhere but like something like on a song for tonight like the the vocal performance and the lyrical content of that song is just absolute pure desperation and it is one of the songs that i will go back to consistently um 20 years later and listen to and be blown away by all the time, you know, the music, the musicality and the way that the band drops away at the end of the song. But I, I also think that what you did incredibly on that record is deliver those, you know, cutting snarky political themes, but then show a different side of what you say, like things rotting away and falling apart and, and where do you go from here kind of feeling. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I didn't really realize this until I started speaking to you guys about this right now, but like, I think almost every suicide file song, uh, I would have to go back and look at this is about like the image of what's presented and then like what's underneath that. Um, and I think that like, there was a lot of fodder for that in like, you know, like 2002, 2003 was like when like, America started really showing its wear, right? (laughs) 
Like yeah. you definitely felt like all these things that like were um, like that had worked up until then were starting to fall apart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of swept away to history in a weird way, right? But like, it was a weird ultimate betrayal of our government to like, you know, attack a sovereign nation and then oh, like wrap right, and yeah. then wrap wrap it in like the flag of patriotism. Right in like hoodwinked everybody, you know, it it, is so wild to think about. I think about all the time. I'm kind of a junkie for like documentaries on that era. Yeah. Because like, it's just so nuts and we've just moved on from it. Like now just everyone agrees that like, oh yeah, like the Iraq war, that was a bad idea, you know? And it's like, well, has there ever been any fucking fallout from it? Like, this is the most insane thing. And we lived through it. Like we were adults. And yeah. nothing happened. Like no one was held accountable. It's fucking crazy. Yes. And I mean, like, uh, just if I can toss a book recommendation out there, this book by Spencer Ackerman, um, who is actually a hardcore kid and quotes ceremony in this book, um, uh, called uh, reign of terror, which is all about how that era like led to Trump. Um, yeah it really like nails all of that stuff, but they're like, and I'm, I'm with you, Zach, like, like at the time it was a very like Kabuki theater, like, so the song Ashcroft, I remember I, <laughs> I wrote because the Super Bowl in 2001 or 2002, I guess, ha- like had this like crazy patriotic reenactment of like Abraham Lincoln break dancing on an American flag or something. Well, I don't know what it was, but like, it was the dumbest shit I've ever seen in my life. And like, I was watching it with a group of friends and people were like, Oh, that's pretty cool. Like, I didn't know like Abraham Lincoln knew how to break dance or like, I <laughs> like this, this like idea. Um, and there, there, a lot of this stuff is resurfaced. Like, you know, like these Disney channel stars being like the reason that I'm proud to wear the flag is because of this, this, and this. Uh, and I think that like, suicide file, like the desperation that you were talking about, Dan was coming partially from anger, but also it's like a much sadder band than no reply. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, the, the, thing that, the, the thing that I can see to echo what you were saying, like we came out to the, for our first East coast tour a month and a half after nine 11. Right. Yeah. And, and you took care of us. Awesome. You still have a blood feud with X, the game X, because they jumped on and stole our set time. You know, <laughs> I think we remember that. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, but the, the thing is like, <laughs> we played that back to school jam and Dropkick Murphy's had a t-shirt try burning this flag. And it was just American pride everywhere. All that over Boston. Right. And it was just, you know, come from the cynical, you know, SoCal politically questioning scene to see, I mean, it's not that patriotism wasn't firing up on all cylinders all over, but to see it entrenched in the hardcore scene was really eye-opening and kind of disheartening to me um, in that time period. Um, So, I mean, I, I can see that's exactly what, you know, started the boil of suicide file, you know? Um, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess the last thing that I would mention is like, um, you know, I, I had been reading a lot about like, um, 
like the period like right before World War One, um, which uh, and there's a famous line like when World War One was starting where this guy was like, the lights are going out all over Europe and we may not see them again in our time. And I quoted that in a song on Twilight. Um, and like that was the vibe for me was that like all of this stuff was happening. People were really like wrapped up in the jingoism and patriotism of what was happening, but they weren't really noticing that like this was the end of something too, right? Like it was the end of, um, I mean, I guess like a, a more, um, <laughs> well, I mean, just look at the last 20 years, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's just, it was the foundation for the hellscape that is now. Exactly. And, and I mean, I think like no reply and to a lesser extent over my dead body and in control in some ways we, we, we existed like the 99, 2000 era was like the last gasp of like, <laughs> nobody really had to care about anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's deep. I would have to think on that. <laughs> but uh, Dave, to tie it back into Suicide File, like, are you ever able to like settle into the accolades you receive and embrace the popularity? And then also to wrap on that band, like, what do you think the legacy of that band is? Um, well, the first thing I'll say is like, it was an awesome group of people, right? Like, um, I think even more, like, No Reply was great. It was great to spend time with those guys. But like, I think what made suicide file an even better experience for me was like really getting to know like the individual members of that band who were all super special people, uh, and very different from me. Right. This was like, you know, when I was in no reply, like Westbrook and I could just talk about like, whatever, like, I don't know, Devo records or so. I don't know what we talked about, but like, <laughs> you know, like, um, what was cool about suicide file was that like the people in that band, I think we all challenged each other to like, like, you know, like Naraj had a different friend group than me. Jared had a different friend group than me. Um, and I think like that band to me, like the main memory I have of that band is like the times that we had as a unit if that makes sense. Cause we toured a lot more than no reply. And so like, you know, like we went to like Yellowstone national park as a band. We like uh, hung out in like a corn maze in wherever I was. And like, and like there was a real feeling. I think what made that band special for me was like feeling like I was like part of a unit of people that were a lot and that like the unit was so much bigger than me, if that makes sense. Right. Like we were, um, like I, everybody in that band, I think was a lot more talented than me. Uh, and so like at the end of the day, like what I liked about it was that I felt like I had to bring my a game every time I was writing lyrics or every time we were practicing or every time we were playing a show and that sense of being like challenged and pushed and then, like, um, you know, you talk a little bit about the accolades. Like, I don't think, like, I think we were a band for such a short time that, um, you know, we weren't like a Bane or like a Terror or one of these bands that, like, like grinds it out for a really, really long time. And 
And I think that like, it felt really cool to do something that people noticed and cared about. But I also didn't have any illusions that that was going to last, right? Like I, I felt like, and I still kind of feel this way. Like once we stopped, I don't think people, I don't think people really were like, this is, this is timeless. I think it was the opposite. It was like a time and a place that was special to a lot of people, but it's not like, you know, like I can go back and listen to like a minor threat record and be like, this is timeless. But I, I'm not sure that a kid today can go back and listen to a suicide file record and be like, this is timeless. Right. I think the people that were there can listen to it and be like, this was great. Like I had a lot of fun with this, but I I don't think that like a new kid getting into hardcore is going to have like suicide file be on their like Spotify playlist. Right. I I disagree. I think that yes, minor threat is timeless because of when it came out and the peers that it had, it, it, it just, is what it is you know it's timeless but suicide file will sound like it came from a time but it will still be able to be enjoyed and checked out but let let's kind of just wrap up on you had an epic last show in philly right uh are you talking about boston or philly um i suppose the philly one is the one that i'm i'm going to was that like a and then you did uh, a reunion out here on the West Coast for No Reply uh, just to host the Stop and Think tour, which is awesome. But yeah. let's talk about how Suicide File ends up, like the Boston and the Philly shows, I suppose, and uh, just what what it means to you looking back on it. Uh well, the, the last show that we played was October 2003, uh, and that was a that was a very special show for me too because it, you know, again, I booked the show. It was at a church in Boston, but I mean, that place was like way over capacity, right? Like we, I personally snuck in a, a, maybe 200 people to that show, right? Like there was a jeep parked outside the show next to an open window, and I just kept grabbing kids and pulling them up. <laughs> through it like they were stepping on the jeep which i think was the pastor's jeep um so that that was good but um uh but that that show was great like it was it was it really felt like the end of a like a an era right like like the other thing that i would mention about suicide file is we went hard right like in like a year and a half we did like three full tours um, and played shows pretty much every weekend. Like every time that we were in Boston on a weekend, we were like going to play Albany or going to play Buffalo or going to play DC. Right. Like we, we, we were playing an awful lot. Um, and so I would say that like that last show was really exciting and awesome to me because it, it felt more like the no reply sense of things where like it was a lot of people that I had seen from around the country. It's like people from Syracuse and Chicago and um, Tennessee were all there and really excited to see us. Um, and it felt like a really nice way to just say goodbye to folks. I mean, the, the band kind of ended because, you know, as I said, Jared really wanted the band to be his life. Right. Um, but I, I knew that I was like, um, I was in grad school at the time and, and I was like, I don't think I can, 
don't think I can like work in a school and then like on Friday afternoon drive to Richmond, Virginia to play a show. <laughs> like, I just don't think I can do that. In retrospect, I have a lot of regrets because I think we, we could have. I think I, I just I was really worried about like overstaying our welcome. Right. Like I didn't want to be like, um, you know, like, uh, as I said before, like Slapshot in 1994, like that's not who I wanted to be. That's not like the kind of band that Suicide File felt like to me. So I would say um, that show was great. I we, we played a few more shows after that, like, um, but those were all like we played Sound and Fury in 2011 and we played. Um, this is hardcore in Philly, which is, I think, what you're referring to, because um, we never played a giant last show in Philly. We just we did play this is hardcore, um, and that was crazy for me because that was maybe about ten years later, yeah. and it was really wild to see people that I had never seen before be into the band and be excited about it. But it also felt like, I mean, I think the lesson that I took out of that is like for better or for worse, like hardcore belongs to the bands that are playing. And I know that. Um, and I, I actually still like, I'm, I'm personally going through a little hardcore Renaissance now. Um, cause my life slowed down some during the pandemic. Um, and I was able to like, listen to music again and discover new music and all that. But like, you know, the difference between me and the year 2000, when I like worked at a hardcore record label and went to every show and like listened to every record and me in like 2010 when like that wasn't really as big a part of my life, like, like hardcore to me is something that you have to like live and breathe to get the most out of it. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it, it completely does. It was um, not something you could just dip your toe back in and, and get everything out of it. You can't. And I, and I would say that like, you know, Zach, I, I started listening to your podcast because um, I uh, was listening to the Eric Ozine interview, um, which was an incredible interview, by the way. Like, uh, <laughs> I'm probably jinxing this because I'm not a great interview, but you're a very good interviewer, right? So these and the the Corey one was also great, but the these things made me think a lot about like, you know, you were asking about legacy and like. I'm just happy that I got to be like a participant in this world. It doesn't matter to me if like nobody remembers or own suicide file or no reply records. Like I feel really proud when like I see a hardcore band play now and I know that I had like a vanilla bean in the vanilla ice cream, like influence on that. Right. Like <laughs> you would have to really look for it, but it's there. Um, and that to me feels like the most important thing. Um, and you know, like for better or for worse, like, I also feel like I put my true self out there, you know, like in every band I was in, I never like, like, I felt like I just, I did things the, like the way that I knew how as hard as I could. Right. Uh, and I think that that's what hardcore is, right? Like that's what that's what being a kid and being excited to go tour and play shows like it's about getting the validation for your true self, I think. And, and I think that like, when I look back at legacy, like it gave me so much confidence, right? Like 
to, to like be able to play a show in front of like a thousand people. Like after that, I was like, Oh, I guess I'm not like, like a big loser or whatever, or like a nerd or whatever. Right. Like, um, and I, I don't think it gave me confidence in like a negative way. It just made me realize that I like had the ability to like be empathetic and connect to all different types of people. And that was really important to me. No, I think it's a, a pretty amazing story in a way, right? Like to be inspired on a visceral level by a band like Life's Halt and then to like channel that authenticity throughout your musical career and kind of like succeed in another lane, like a national lane while never losing that. Like that's something pretty special. And I think it's why people still connect to your catalog and and I agree with Dan. I think it's timeless. I think that Suicide File happens at a very interesting time for hardcore when things are changing a lot. And, you know, you can discount it as much as you want, but like you were one of the major players in that time when like the the ANs and the Hope Cons and the Banes are like really taking over and it's rolling that way. So uh, I think you can pat yourself on the back, dude. Enjoy yourself because we, <laughs> we appreciate you. And, uh, yeah, you're great. We got to have you back at some point. Uh, we'll do a more fun show. But Okay, we, as long as are, I don't have to do like an integrity vocal test karaoke, I'm, I'm in. No, you don't have to do that. It's all good. Uh, but yeah, we, we have like, we have changed over to uh, like going through these segments now, which keeps us hyper-focused on certain things. And I yeah. wanted to do just one with you before we wrap. fight lasts for hours, each ram battering the other dozens of times. Head to head. All right, we're going to go head to head with Dave Weinberg. Dave, what band was better, Over My Dead Body or In Control? Oh man, putting me on the spot. Uh, <laughs> man, I don't know if I can answer. I don't know if I can answer that one. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of like um, uh, it's like choosing between your children. You know, uh, except that uh, in this case, uh, I had nothing to do with raising either of your bands. Um, I would say. I don't know, man. Like, it's kind of hard for me, too, because I know both of you guys through multiple bands. Like, um, Zach, I knew you from, from, um, uh, like the, like previous Oxnard bands, um, like Stand Your Ground. And, uh, Dan, I knew you from like Palpatine and even the Built to Last guys. Ooh, this is a tough one. Yeah, no, no, no fence walking like a food and antihero show. Okay, okay. Uh, I'll say, um, well, I don't know which band was better, but I felt like, um, like I ended up seeing over my dead body more times in more contexts, um, just because, um, Zach, In Control came to Boston and you guys played Berwick, right? Correct. Um, 
Did you guys make it out again after that? Dude, I was letting you off the hook on this one. Yeah, we came out and you canceled our show two days before and we had a Saturday night off in Boston on US tour. Shit, sorry about that. <laughs> I was so letting you off the hook, dude. I already grilled you on the Ben Edge thing, so I wasn't going to do it again. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I uh, Your idols guys were so fucking mad at you because it was I like us that. and them doing a couple shows. Yeah, and you, you, it was a Saturday night and you canceled like two days before, so it was too late for us to get another show. And it's like, oh, sick, we're on the East Coast and have a night off on a Saturday. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's, cool. it's cool. We got uh, Omaha booked on Thursday. <laughs> hey, that's the mecca that's the mecca that's i'm, I'm so about. sorry about that like i booking shows in boston was so difficult because every venue would like change things around and like competing I'm, i apologize uh forgiven but uh this has been a great show for uh ptsd and hardcore <laughs> clearly clearly um well okay so i would say uh in that case, in control. I like in control more. <laughs> That's what's up. Love it. <laughs> Appreciate you, Dave. And uh, we got to have you back, and we'll we'll do a fun one. Okay, but, uh, that sounds good. Um, uh, I do want to say that, um, like the the podcast that you guys do, like has meant a lot to me. I've been I've been listening a lot, especially during the pandemic. Like I said, uh, and hearing you all talk about like. I mean, honestly, that that interview with Corey, Zach, like really when he was talking about Jordan and sort of that time period, it, it brought back a lot for me. And I, and I think that uh, as long as we're patting people on the back, you should pat yourself on the back for some of your long form interviews. They're really great. I agree. I, that's one of my very favorite ones. I reached out like immediately and was like, this is incredible. But I, I'm glad you glad you felt the same. It's all credit to the interviewees, you know, like it just depends how much you want to open up, you know, it's everyone's platform. I try to, you know, set people up to get out the story they want, you know, and, and really I like in interviewing, I think that the, one of the biggest challenges is like learning to shut the fuck up and like get out of your way and let other people talk, you know? So, and Corey has such a great gift of gab. So yeah. It's, and and he laid it all on his sleeve. That was a great interview. And man, nothing but respect to him for opening up like that. That was that was wild. You know, it was it was like a I don't know. It was a special moment on the pod. And I, I hope he felt good after it. I know he did. I've talked to him. So well, um, you know, hopefully he hears this. And uh, I mean, I'll shoot him a text, I guess, and tell him how much that meant to me. But it was great. Yeah, well, there's another podcast called Neanderthal Society. He just did five hours with them if you want more. So, Holy shit. Okay. Yeah. All right. Is that yeah. guy going to do a 16-hour Eric Ozine interview just to try to top you on that too? That's right. Yeah, possibly. You know, I love that long-form shit. But, uh, man, there's a lot of homework that goes into it. So I I thank Dan and Ben and Chris and all the people for helping me out. Joe, everyone, for helping me out of getting me away from that a little bit. But, Dave – You've been so generous with your time. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Zach. And, um, you know, I, I hope that uh, I hope that I can come back on at some point. And, um, you know, I, I will say that, like, I, I'm pretty good at trivia, but some of the trivia questions you guys asked were causing my head to explode. So maybe <laughs> I'll skip the trivia one, too. Well, I aim it towards the people that do it. So it's, okay. it's, not, it's not as dickheaded as it sounds, you know. 
So if you come on, Dave, expect at least three questions about punk singers that wear cod pieces. (laughs) Okay, cool, cool. So it's all about the addicts and anti-nowhere league. (laughs) Exactly. That's what's up. 185, motherfuckers.